I would just go to the studio and I would work towards resolving that, that piece, which again, there was an idea. I came up with an overall structure. I had certain materials, all right? There's your architect at work. In the process of working on it, things would happen I hadn't realized. I had to solve this. I had to do that. I would change things. I would add stuff. There's the gardener. And, and But I was still working in a methodical process that there seemed to be step after step after step. And now, I guess one of the creative aspects of my life is how do I make sense of where I'm at with this multi-personality? You know, I have become a hydra with a lot of different heads all thinking about different things, right? Hello and welcome to the Sneaky Art Podcast. I'm your host, Nishant Jain. A big thanks to everyone that supports my work and helps to keep this show going. I'm speaking today with my good friend, Don Colley. Like the previous couple of episodes, this one is also a second conversation. It's a chance for me to catch up with guests who have already appeared on the show and share with them some new ideas that I've imbibed from having such lovely conversations with so many wonderful guests. I met Don when I lived in Chicago and hung out with the Urban Sketchers chapter there. We immediately hit it off because we both share a deep love for human activity in urban spaces and using art to express both the good and bad conditions of modern society. In keeping with the format of previous episodes, this one also begins with our first conversation from uh, 2020 and then segues into the second conversation which was recorded in early November last year. I am always happy to speak with Don and to absorb his ideas about the world and his work. And I hope you will enjoy it too. Good morning, Don. It's excellent to have you here and I'm very happy to speak to you on my podcast. It's nice to be with you, Nishan. It's good, good to have a little connection in these times. Yes. So, uh, Don, I've drawn with you several times and we've drawn together in different locations in Chicago. Um, I want to start our conversation with something that makes me very curious. And that's in the way that we look at the same kind of things. So we've drawn together in cafes, we've drawn together in food halls. And often because I'm drawing with my fountain pen, I'm drawing a little bit faster than you or I'm finishing a little bit faster than you. So I take the liberty of just peering over your shoulder just to see what you're doing and how you go about doing your drawings. And this thing makes me really curious that you don't sometimes begin with a line or with a shape or a dot the way some people do, but sometimes you just begin with a smudge. Mm. And you put a smudge here, you put a smudge there. Sometimes it's with the edge of your marker. Sometimes it's with your fingers. And I'm curious what that's all about. How, how do you get started with all these sketches that you do in like densely packed places? I have a variety of different approaches, first off. And it has a lot to do with my um, comfort zone, you might say. Am I drawing a lot? Is the line there for me? Am I seeing contours very clearly? Do I get a sense of space? 
and uh, are things moving in front of me? Is, is the situation dynamic or is it static? Um, do I want the drawing? Am I going to elaborate on the drawing? Or do I think this is just a quick sketch and I don't have much time to do anything? So that those things sort of determine how I approach. I, I approach every drawing the same way, which is in this respect. I ask myself, what am I doing? And that that opens up once I decide what I want to what I want to go, what I want to take with it, how much time I want to invest, what my time frame looks like. That that sets in place an editing process, and which is either work with brevity or elaborate. And if I just sometimes do a medium value or a light value smudge, I can block in basic forms. And if a person's moving, nothing is fixed. It just gets me on the page and I get basic proportions or I get basic localities. And then, then it's a what's crucial. Uh, and if somebody's face is moving a lot, then maybe I develop the body until I have a moment to catch the face. Um, so in court, for example, when I draw in court, I've got jury. The jury is pretty static. If, if I'm drawing a lawyer, they could be up for only so much time moving. And if I'm drawing um, a prisoner that's come in and he's just there for a couple of minutes, I don't have a lot of time to set things up. So I, like you, like you, that's where I might rely on my my contour work much more rapidly. And if getting an exact likeness isn't so crucial, then I just, I'm kind of knocking in something. It's it's sort of like you're setting down these anchors in places for, uh, it's it's a way to compose the scene almost like where the big elements are going to be whenever you find the time or the right right moment to put them in. Yeah, it it, it is, and you know if you let your eyes go out of focus and just sort of see things as blurry shapes and blobs, basic shapes. It's remarkable how sometimes I get more of an accuracy of that because I'm knocking the person in relative to where the the masses are, and then I can come back in, and I can draw the the particulars on top of that. So you're going from the general to the specific, and and that way I know roughly where the head's going to be. I've already gotten where I can drop down to the body, and I, I've uh, things already kind of have a general place where they're supposed to be, and I don't have to be so cautious actually allows me to move more rapidly once I get to that phase. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, moving back from the specific to the general again, like when people look at the amount of work you've done, like someone like me, if we were, if he were to not know you and they look at your Instagram profile or they look at your work somewhere else, they see like this vast variety of work and all this uh, these different kinds of subjects that you that you use, and the different kinds of ways that you depict them, and what some one thing that often happens, and I talk about this with Paul in the in my first episode, is that we develop a very static image of what the artist is. So if I look at ten works by uh, Don Colley, I'll get an idea of this is what Don Colley draws, this is what he likes to do, and therefore this is the kind of artist he is, but. What that does is it doesn't, it creates like this separate single dimensional image, which doesn't exist anywhere in reality, but just in my mind, that's my impression. But it doesn't really answer for how, you know, how you've come to your art and how it is that something that you've drawn in 1990 looks 
a certain way, something that you've drawn 10 years later depicts a certain thing. It depicts you in a way. So can you tell me how did, how did art come into your life? Have you always been drawing as a child? Yeah. Um, I moved around a lot as a child, about every two years. And so until I developed friends, you know, I self-entertained and I was fascinated with comic books and got into those pretty early. And the thing about cartoons and comics is they're generalized shapes. They're much more simplified. I mean, they're very sophisticated people who did them, but they worked off of basic geometry. So that was accessible to somebody who was learning how to draw and, and, and couldn't do traditional classical, you know, rendering, didn't understand, didn't understand perspective, didn't under, but here you could see things and you related to it and they, and they had um, fun shapes, but also um, they, they had stories. So I came to, to drawing for a variety of reasons. One was just the act of liking to draw what I saw, um, to make up stories. My nephew did that too. He would make little stories up and he would illustrate them. I think as a child, I did stuff like that. And, and I mean, I even remember uh, at times just drawing all the different uniforms I could for basketball players just to get variety of colors, just a, a way as a way to play with color combinations. And um, I would draw army men and pieces of paper, which would have a flap so I could set them up and I would make a little village of guys coming through buildings. And it was almost like storefronts. So uh, uh, it was, a, for me, it's always been a mix of things of just trying to um, sort of interpret or a form of copy realities if I couldn't copy those shapes to, to telling stories or just trying to describe things for the first time. And, um, and today, even, I still use the art for a variety of reasons, but um, just the enjoyment of drawing light and dark just the enjoyment of, of capturing that. And, and I'm a pretty linear guy. I had to push myself into strong tones and stuff because I was so satisfied with line. I didn't want to cover the line up, you know. Um, but I traveled a lot. And today, still, for job reasons and personally, I, I just go out and about. And it's my form of diary making, reportage. Uh, my sketchbooks have grocery lists in them they also have uh, arguments with friends that i think back over and then i did uh, a lot of artwork and so if i was out and about and i saw something that inspired an idea i would make notes of it so the book is also about going out and just culling ideas and and um and and then it's about the act of of understanding what is it you see right so when you draw things it forces you to to kind of look at them a little harder for more prolonged and trying to understand what is that shape i see what is that and that that continues on into what are they doing uh-huh uh you mentioned the comics and i find that so interesting because uh drawing comics and wanting to draw better comics is a large part of my motivation for how I got into urban sketching. And the part that's uh, probably very similar to the way you explain it is 
that every image and this i explain this to people uh, based on my learning from the book by one of the greatest cartoonists of all time i i wonder if you're also a fan of his it's will eisner oh yeah he's well they've got the eisner award so there's a lot of people that are pretty taken with will i the spirit yeah he did the spirit something will eisner talks yeah the spirit comics so he has a book about understanding comics and how to how to draw comics mm-hmm. and that was super profound for me because something it explained was how do we look at a frame and the relationship that different kinds of frames have to us and therefore how important is every frame in a comic and every image in a comic is such a is there for such precise reasons to evoke such precise emotions and to give such precise information to us that i i feel like somebody who takes inspiration from comic books is always very precise also looking for precision in what they're trying to show because like i haven't studied art formally so what how i interpret what i learn is what what's important is what i go to immediately and that comes to me also from comics and i feel like that's how it it sounds very similar to how you're reasoning uh the 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 choice of finding subjects which are different in different scenes choosing buildings choosing people yeah i i mean i did go to art school for four years or something like that i studied print printing and paint making and stuff and art history um but long before i got there i looked at rembrandt i looked at a lot of guys before i got to art school i was fascinated with them and rembrandt was a he was an urban sketcher he drew out on about all the time um so the comics you have i mean I'm, in many ways i think i'm a frustrated filmmaker because there is such a strong narrative component in my work and i do but I, and, and i was a projectionist at a student union film program for a while so i locked i watched a lot of movies and and um but i was always like how do i jam a story into a single image or just five images or six like a page and and where you you freeze something but it has to it's part of a larger story but it leads on to things so and sketchbooks for me can be really disjunct i come back and forth over years but other times they they do have a flow and they're sort of following you through your week or your month and how you see things and i i let some pages be a real mess other pages i'm thinking of the edge like the way that your stories have containment that's real important where the proscenium is and and um the comics had to do that the comics had to guide your eye tell the story be compact be about composition be spare, spare right and and that's where the whole thing of what's relevant comes into play and that that's that begins when you ask yourself what am i doing that's where you you do i need tone do i need shade is this going to be black and white as there's something before me as a, a visual phenomenon before me i want to capture or is this just like when i draw a court there's so much i can't do i don't have time so you very quickly realize and comics were great for that comics were like you know think of think of uh, dagwood and 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 some real simple ones and little orphan annie there's a little very little information in them and and uh, some are even like peanuts charles schultz's peanuts two figures might be there talking so when you're drawing as an urban sketcher um 
one of the things that's happening many times, especially with the guidelines that they set for urban sketching, you was, they want you to do this on site, right? So it was, I studied photography with Gary Winogrand, and he would take thousands of images and then go in the dark room and look at his contact sheets to see what he liked. So his editing process oftentimes took place. He would shoot really rapidly, sometimes not even looking through the camera. So his editing process was intuitive on site, but oftentimes afterwards he had so many choices to pick from. Then he would look at them as a separate editor, right? But when we're drawing on site, we're editing in real time. And that's, the, that's where it comes down to. It's so important to ask yourself, what's primary, secondary, and superfluous? Yeah, that's a really good point. And also about the comics, because like uh, a comic has to, by default, grab attention. It doesn't have the luxury that the reader is going to give it as much time as it would like. So they really have to get down to brass tacks very quickly. And that's getting to the point. And it's also a very interesting way of form following function, which you then, you know, whenever you strip something down to its basics, but you're still trying to make art out of it, you're sort of thinking about what is the point of this? Why am I doing this? And what is it that best does the job of saying that while maybe taking only a few seconds or maybe 50% of the engagement from the part of my viewer? Well, you know, I mean, you have a time constraint on you. And you have, you also have, um, you're trying to draw the viewer's eye sometimes. Other times, I mean, there's times when I have text. So comics oftentimes have, many times they would have text. Um, Art, Art Spiegelman uses the term comix because he's comix, not just comics, but with an X instead of a C, he's comix. He's comixing text and imagery. And comic books do that. And, and there's, kind of the benefit that you maybe you don't need to reveal everything with the imagery because the text is going to bring something to it you don't have to the, the, you're not necessarily illustrating the text with the imagery what you're doing is that they're working together to fill the story out so the imagery is doing some of the work the text is doing some of the work and and so there are times when i i do that i i bring text in to give somebody context you know, they see they see an image, they don't know what it means, but once I write a little bit of information, they realize they're looking at a crime scene. So I came upon a stabbing uh, in St. Paul about midnight one night. And it, it had already taken place, the fight had taken place, the guy had fallen, the police came, they, they just were driving off with the, the victim. And you're there just drawing, you know, a, a transit stop with some cops standing around. So a little, a little context sort of gives them an idea of where you are, what you're about. And I have a drawing of a friend's uh, Jeep and it's under wraps. And it's a, just a beautiful object, right? But the guy who owns the, the, the Jeep is a friend of mine, so it's at his beach house. And the, it's, the name of the Jeep is Bob's Babe Magnet. So with this, you also get that image also talks about some guy's vanity or his his youth or his imagination of his his joke about being virile and you know the, the joke on if if you have a jeep it's clearly got some kind of cultural cachet or some sexual cachet to it so so you know i mean the my sketchbooks and uh, my imagery and when i go out and and draw and 
an, an urban sketching and description or environment, sometimes a little text complements the, the visuals. And so I, I do that because it might, the situation be, may be just so complex that, you know, because I've, I've drawn arrest, people being arrested and, and uh, police tackling a guy. And uh, you're trying to just get some people wrestling, but then you give a text of what else you witnessed. So I do, I do like the, and that, that's kind of pulling the whole storytelling aspect of comic books into visual journaling. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'm curious to know, like, with a lot of interest in comics, and like, so many people who draw comics, they they learn to draw better from, you know, they have to work on their art, and they want to draw better and better things, and they choose a variety of sources. But I don't think like very many people are pulled towards drawing from observation. So I'm curious to know how did drawing from observation occur to you as the way you wanted to go forward. I was a naturalist, man. I was a realist all the way along the line. I just, uh, and the comic book guys, I certainly liked, uh, I certainly like Popeye. That's pretty simple stuff. And I liked, um, uh, so if you look at Popeye and you look at Dagwood, they had an iconic figure. It was pretty simply constructed. Well, Mickey Mouse, that's another one. It's basically very simply constructed. But if you saw Prince Valiant or you saw Terry and the Pirates, uh, with either of the two guys that did that George Wonder I specifically liked. It was clear they knew how to compose out of their head. And through anatomy studies or just observation of people. So that's when, you know, part of what gives you over the course of time better understanding of the uh, your subject. And and I so I I liked naturalism and realism, but I also liked, you know, uh, outrageous shapes and I like um, taking liberties my whole thing why I, I never, never really was talked into doing graphic novels or comic books I did one page of comic books I think I have about 10 images on the page was the idea that in animation that you would have to draw this figure from every angle thousands of times and and uh, if you look at my work I have I have um, borrowed and appropriated and quoted so many different styles, you know, into, into my work from uh, Degas and Michelangelo to George Harriman and a lot of people. And there's just times when I want to change gears in the middle of an image. I want to, I start letting something open up and um, I kind of want that freedom to not be locked into something over and over and over again, which is, you know, well, I was asked to do a comic book. Somebody had the idea, and there's a guy who had already done the pencils. I was going to come and ink the thing up, and 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 I backed away from it <laughs> just because I I think of drawing, especially when you're drawing on site, as like free jazz, improvisational, and if you need to kind of blare something, it you come out in force. Um, and there's a real well-known drawing by Rembrandt of uh, Sasha, but she's, his wife is catnapping. She's sleeping. And he starts out, she's kind of leaning like this. And around the face, the lines are more precise. There's clearer. And as he moves around the body and the clothing, he switches to a brush. And it gets looser and looser. And if you put your hand over this part of the body, it's Brown's Klein. 
it completely goes almost abstract. And I've always adored that liberty. So, so in my books, there's some kind of consistency and uh, things I go to over and over and over again. But uh, if the drawing isn't giving me any juice, <laughs> uh, then I might, I might ask myself to be a little bolder. So, so, you know, I mean, I, I really do want my craft is also an acknowledgement of my, um, my influences, my ancestors, the, the whole people that got me to where I am by looking at them. And, and especially that it's in a sketchbook that I, I kind of reserve that freedom of experimentation. Mm -hmm. What, what do you enjoy about, uh, then say going out somewhere and you've got your sketchbook and you've got this complete, like, it's something I also completely understand, like this feeling that the sketchbook is my space to do whatever I want inside with. But when you go out to a cafe, say, for example, and you're in a crowded cafe, of course, this is before COVID. Uh, what, like, wh what is it that inspires you about just everyday life that you want to draw? Well, um, I mean, I've always been very figurative. There's a period of time in my life, many, many, many years. I wouldn't, I didn't draw trees. I didn't draw landscapes. I didn't draw, it was always interiors and people. And um, I like watching people. Like who doesn't you know, like watching people, right? And the uh, but it's, what's the activity that draws me to a lot of what's going on? And it's not just anymore just copying shapes or getting a likeness. It's also what what's taking place before me. So, for example, guy that I liked a lot, the the impressionist. Paris was changing at that time. Right. It was going through big changes in the 19th century and the boulevards came in and they were in many respects that it was relishing being out there. They had cafe scenes and cabaret scenes and and Lettrec shows the side of, you know, intimacy and prostitution. Degas would show people drinking in cafes. There was the issues of alienation, modernization. So what am I documenting about my epic, my period of time? So I don't just, okay, there's a guy sitting on a chair. It's not just, can I make a convincing that this guy is, there's gravity and he's sitting on a chair. Um, it's what, what, what can I, can I get some sense of um, engagement intellectually activity? Can you tell, does he seem to be focused? Does he sleep? Is it, you know, it's, it's, it's this thing with a very little time and with just an image, what kind of information can you get about that place, that time and, and living in us, Chicago and living in America at this time, which is a extremely, um, well endowed society in many respects, those gifts don't trickle down to everybody the same way. So one of the things, if you go out there and you're in an urban environment, you're definitely going to draw not just the variety of, of architecture and disparity. You're going to, you're going to draw the, the variety of people's experiences. And that's, that's a strong, that's a strong narrative for me. And again, going back to the comment that a, a frustrated filmmaker, you know, I want to, uh, I want to capture what, what essentially makes an urban environment. I mean, I was in spring Springfield, 
for the last three days. And at night, when I tell you there's no one on the street, I mean to tell you that from our apartment building, from the from the hotel, when we looked down, over the course of 30 minutes, you could see one person. Right? And then uh, I've seen photographs of New York that friends took after COVID really hit with these big boulevards. So there's a lot of urban sketching where they go out and they capture that kind of things. And the figures are just these things that are going around, right? They're just kind of like a scale reference. But I want to get a sense of what we did at this time, who we were. And, and that means clothing, how diverse the population is. Um, is there a sense of interaction? Are people contained in themselves? So the whole thing of wearing headsets and books you know, uh, is sometimes people creating their own environment. They want to create their soundtrack. They don't want to listen to the soundtrack playing over here. They, they, they are sealing themselves off in the midst of a, of a heavily populated situation. And, and that's why I don't wear headphones when I'm drawing. I actually am trying to be immersed in, in the time and get cues, any kind of cue I can take. Uh, because the work I did is for so many years as, a, as an artist making paintings and prints was about societies either collaborating or in conflict. And, and we have both on full view right now. So, so for me, when I go out, uh, um, I'm just, is something going to happen? And, and I can catch it. So I've seen crime happen and I stop and I draw. I've seen people on the street who are homeless that were painting and trying to sell paintings, trying to make a living that way. And uh, to me, that's uh, as important to, that you see clearly those kind of things as it is how I can port out to see perspective. Yeah. So it's it's very interesting you say that because uh, I feel like I've articulated those kind of thoughts in my own words too. Um, like when I submitted my workshop proposal for the USK seminar in Chicago last year, one of the things I said in it, and I think it's also in my workshop description now, is that uh, an urban environment without people in it is like a dystopian environment. And it's post, it, it looks post-apocalyptic. It does. Because the whole, the whole purpose of the urban environment is that it exists to service humanity. It doesn't exist in nature. It doesn't need to exist. It's only there for our use. It's a consequence of our needs. And we, we need to do this. We need to get from A to B. We need to eat food. We need coffee to re-energize us when we go back to work. So this is why we have so-and-so services. And if you show a cafe, but you don't have a person in it drinking coffee, that's not a cafe. That's just an interior space. You could be at a design center. <laughs> this is somebody's idea of what a cafe could look like. Exactly right. It, it only becomes a cafe when there is someone drinking coffee inside that cafe. Yeah. And, and you know, it's when you're looking at things too, when you don't maybe have all of the uh, actors present, can you still tell something about the place? So, for example, uh, it's kind of a stretch here, but Da Vinci does the very famous Vitruvian Man. He's there in the circle and shows him. And, and Vitruvius was a Roman engineer architect. And what he says is that the human being is the single most important unit of measurement in the classical order. So... As you look around, you see counter heights, 
tell you how tall we are, right? All of the things to, it, we do, it is designed for human beings. And so when you remove that crucial part to this whole design, I'm with you. There's something, uh, I don't want to say lacking or missing, but there is something, there's part of the narrative that you're just completely left to guesswork. Is it an affluent society? Is it a society in decay? Is it a, is, is a society of uniformity? Is, are, are the people, I lived in Turkey as a, a child in 1960. Uh, 1968, and um, coming from California, you know, which is probably one of the most modern parts of the world at that time, I went to a society which different than it is now. It's changed a lot, but there was fewer colors. There was a certain interaction between the people. There were things that it did, um, and it was jarring for me. It was jarring, and so when I move around. The human element of an urban environment is so informative. It's so informative. And, and one of the things when I go out to draw people is, is it through empathy or what you know or, or what you can imagine as to, to, to find out what's going on? And so I see people when they're wearing clothes, do the clothes tell you what their tribe is? Are they goth? Are they punk? Are they a businessman? And I find that search compelling for an artist to go out and, and to, if it's there and it's not in your drawings, it's by, an inclu it's, it's by, by purposeful exclusion. Why? So the, that's the thing about when you say, what am I doing when I'm drawing? I am capturing this building in the light and everything else is brushed aside. So for me, when I go out there, sometimes the buildings are very important. Other times the building is just where it takes place, but what's going on there is so much more compelling to me. And I know that a lot of architects might, might think, right, well, you know, the buildings are tell us who we are as well. And without doubt, they do, you know. But I've seen drawings. I have no idea what century I'm in. I have no idea what time it is, no idea what the weather is. And so when I go out to draw, I do want to come back and think, what did I, what did I gain? What did I capture from the, the day's outing and the drawing? When, I, when you put pen to paper, what did mm -hmm. you bring back? Right? That, that's a really good point. You know, I had that same kind of experience, uh, like you relate about Turkey, for example. Uh, when I moved, to, I moved to the middle of Wisconsin and we were in this small town and I had never lived in a world like that before. I grew up in a very big and very dense city in India. And I've moved around since then. I've lived in Western Europe for a few years. I came to Chicago and then suddenly I was in Wisconsin. And I used urban sketching and drawing, uh, not and maybe not consciously, maybe half semi-consciously as a way to try to understand this foreign world that I was in. And I'm, I wanted, I went to the cafes because I wanted to see how do these people drink their coffee, these people that I'm now living next to, but I have no concept of them. I don't know what they're like. So wh where, where do they hang out in summer? What do they do in winter? Where do they have their beers? What do they order? Do they sit around and talk? Do they have some kind of food to go with it? So all of these questions that kind of yeah. like build your world and they're answered through being an urban sketcher in the sense that like you said, that you, you really sit with your subject for a while 
and you may not speak, but you're spending this time with them. And that's letting you think about how things, how, how things are appearing before you. And you wait for this moment of what I describe in my book as like a moment of accidental art. Like the subjects don't really know it, but from where you're sitting and what you're looking at, in that there's these brief moments come in and you're sort of preparing it in your page, you know, when you draw all the ancillary elements and you know the, where the real subject is going to come, but you don't know what that subject is. And you're just oh, yeah. waiting for that moment to happen. It's, it's, it's very exciting. You know, you, you can't know what the day holds for you. Uh, and when you're going to go out and draw, um, that's for a long time. I've always had, I've had my sketchbook on me. I would say, I would say 1976, I walked out the door with sketchbooks. I switched majors from science to art after about three years of college and, and uh, was drawing all the time, of course, and having to come up with ideas for paintings. You're, so you like, whenever, whenever you've got a pad there, you can write ideas down. I don't have a great memory, never have had a great memory. It's very spotty and selective and, and, and good ideas will pop in my head and they will just vacate. So if I had good ideas, I would write them down, you know, and if I saw something, uh, I'd write, I'd make a note for a long time. I've, I've been out with the sketchbook to record things that happened or notions or conversations or something crazy. And it, uh, it functions in so many ways as, as I said, as I could, as a, it's my form of taking a camera with me and a, a diary. Um, and to also let your imagination, because sometimes I go out and I see stains on the floor if I'm sitting in a cafe and the stain looks like an elephant riding a bicycle. And I draw, but my imagination is telling me. So, so having all of that um, at play, I, I definitely don't know what's going to happen in the day. And that is very very exciting so now when you go out you know one of the things is everybody's masked up and that's what you're recording you're recording fewer people on the bus people sitting farther apart you're recording you're recording how the society is contending but you were always recording something about what the society was doing if you were just alert you know i'm also not i'm not the most observant guy my girlfriend's far more observant than i am so one of the great things for me that drawing has done, it has taken a guy who has a fleeting uh, attention span and is very tangential, and it gets me to focus. I mean, that's a major word, focus and, and awareness. And it, it, it slows me down. It gets me to capture things that, that uh, are in front of me without me having really paid them much attention and it, it it gets me to think about something while i'm drawing it so I, I i there's lots of people who are struggling in chicago as you well know and uh when you're on the train you have a lot of indigent people uh, people clearly look as if they're homeless right and so when you draw these you know there's a lot of people who might say Okay, is this exploitative? What is the purpose of drawing this? But to me, it's another, as you would draw a cop working, that's one aspect of the force, the, the human population. You have other ones that are going through some other trial. And to not describe that is 
almost a willful admission. And then you would have to ask answer to that is like, why? Why would you deselect? So I, I do the variety of things. And I remember this one gentleman got on pretty uh, unkempt and had a bag, plastic bag with a lot of stuff stuffed in it. Shoes were really a mess. He had several layers of clothes on. And uh, and it's, I got him sitting next to people. Uh, sometimes, you know, there's literally somebody smells and people vacate. But the but the trains were fairly crowded, and so people were around and guy. But everybody was in their low world, nobody making contact. And I drew him, and he's got one image of him taking a swig out of a big bottle of pop. And then the next one, he just kind of sat there, and he just kind of looked. He was just sitting there kind of gazing. And I got that, these two heads of him with the people behind him sitting there. And that's a when you when you see this kind of thing, it's hard not to to go through questions in your mind about everything from is the society functioning at peak level? Is there nothing we could have done in this one case? How would I relate? How would I fare in those situations? Because I see somebody sitting there like this, whether they're reading a book, I still imagine I, the brain at work. And so this, and some of the imagery, I don't know that I can tell somebody else what to think, but there's a there's an image which to me is loaded with the challenge of uh, empathetic questioning, understanding, right? And if I was a, not just an urban sketcher, but if it's an urban planner. That was something you th would hope they would think. What, how does a society and an urban thing accommodate people who are in that situation? So to me, the, the books do push me, the practice and the books do push me to engage and to, to see things and to push what I might presume or understand or know and, and keep it's a it's a questioning practice, and I even talk about the whole act of drawing. That uh, you know, it's, I love the manual quality of the craft, and when you put a pen in your hand, it becomes an extension of your hand. So when you're drawing, like it's a smudge, I begin sometimes. You do a drawing, you touching page. That's a that's inquiry. That's a that's what you're doing. It's not just a decorative thing. Or a statement, but many times it's it's inquiry, and and there are times when you draw and this just really sense that you got it, it's there on the page, and there's other times where you have something enigmatic on there. Uh, and I had a friend who died uh, some years ago, a very dear friend who was an artist, and his fortunes just went down the tube, and he got lost his dog. He stopped having an apartment and a studio, and just rented a studio and lived in his studio and then he couldn't hold jobs down his substance abuse went up and he was kicked out of the studio and he started going from friend's house to friend's house and staying everybody was trying to put him up and then they was told that he was sleeping on the streets well he eventually he eventually his life got to him and he died and and i went looking for him uh the week that he died 
I heard that he was on the street. So I went looking for trying to talk him into going into counseling, rehab, something, something. I couldn't find him. It turned out while I was there looking for him, he had already passed away. But I started having to look at an urban environment in a very distinct way, which is how hostile is it? Where do you sleep? Because it was wintertime. Where can you be safe? So when I was traveling in L.A., there were lots of homeless. And now there's homeless populations all over the place. So you see a park differently. You see a tree differently. Uh, so I started seeing things as shelter. And I would find that, in fact, they were. And my drawings, I did drawings of uh, air ducts over parking garages. And I looked in there and there was bedding so they could be out of the out of the weather. So again, urban sketching to me is 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 also a because I was in the sciences for three years. And it's about going out and trying to kind of understand your environment without presuming you know everything about it. We've lived in cities for how long, right? But all you have to do is come from your city with your country to another country and immediately your bearings are off, right? And and any given day, I can go out in a city I've lived in for 20 years and I can be shocked or surprised or confused. And so the drawing is part of the way in which I think about uh, my my place in the world and my culture, my time here. It's It's very interesting to me the way that you, like the concept of the sketchbook, the way that you use a sketchbook. Uh, because I know people who... And I was once in this place myself when I wasn't so confident with how I drew. I would think of each paper as this revered paper that I was going to spoil by making a bad drawing, you know. But now I don't I don't feel that way anymore. But then I look at the way you use your sketchbooks. You, uh, you have so many sketchbooks that you use which have been finished long ago. Or you have a few pages left in them from many years ago. And you're using and reusing those. Sometimes you go back to old pages on which you already have drawings and you do drawings on top of them. Yeah. So can you explain to me, like, how do you, like, what is your concept of the sketchbook? Because it feels so different from anyone else's. Well, there are pages when uh, that page is about that moment in time. It's about that 20 minutes. If I'm drawing life drawing, uh, I, I get a drawing where the figure the composition happens and in 20 minutes, that's what I was able to see and record in 20 minutes. I don't, I, I don't want to touch it if, it if I really like the way it came out. The other ones are a real uh, awful mess. It's fair game to go back and play with them. But because uh, I do think in terms of composition as well, noise. And if a, a page is really hideous, I'll just keep trying to push it uh, as, as more of an art, right? Is the imagery dynamic? Is the concept good? Is the page, is this, there's a room for revisions. Can I learn something by playing on it again? Um, but there are scenes which are, there are pages which are of that moment and that time that I've allowed myself to sit there and observe something. And, and many of those I don't want to disturb. Uh, but I'm not hard and fast in that rule, right? Uh, some pages, some sketchbooks are just really free-flowing. Like I think I said earlier, it's like free jazz or so whatever. And there's no, reason, there's no reason why I can't come back into some of them and just keep like a 16-track 
board of music. We, ah, we need another guitarist. Let's bring somebody else in here and add to this. Uh, I'll, I'll do that. So they, they serve a lot of, they serve a lot of purposes. And, um, there's some moments where I feel I'm a different person an hour later. I have a different, I have a different idea. I see I'm now acting as a, I'm acting as an art director where the artist went out and did his job and now I'm stepping on his work. So I go back and forth on that, but I have a lot of pages. I have a lot of pages was like, no, that's it. You're done. And I prevent myself from going back onto the page. Uh, again, it's, it, it, it comes back to that question I asked is what am I doing? And if that's the understanding, when I do this drawing, you got one hour. Let me see what you can do in one hour. I kind of like that the flaws are there. I like that. I tell you who I was at that moment in time. That's, yeah. that's that drawing's job. Right. Yeah. Because it's, a, it's, it's not only a drawing of what's in front of you, but it's also about you. And every time we draw on paper, we're also showing, like you said, like if we can show an urban environment without showing the kind of people around a building, for example, that's also reflecting on our choices and reflecting on what, what we choose to hide is also a reflection, not simply what we yeah. choose to show. Uh, so I, I meant to ask you, um, you know, de de describing a typical sketch, what, what is a typical sketch for you? Like what kind of times do you set yourself? Do you, do you go out for, do you draw multiple pages in a day? Do you usually just think of one page at one sitting? And uh, what kind of art supplies would you be likely to take when you go out to draw? Well, uh, there's the there's the on the way to work. If I have to go do a job, you know, waiting tables, bartending, carpentry. On the way to work, I got some time to draw. Right, I'm just going to capture what I can, and maybe it's a page I've already worked on. I got a little space, so sometimes I've, I've got just head studies. So you know, you do one, two, three heads. You still got plenty of paper. So the next time you have you need a space for a head. I fill that in. So I might, and, and, and on pages, I'll number the heads so you can tell which one was done first because they come in in this their crazy way. Other times, um, I've had days where I took a train up to Fargo and uh, got on Union Station and took a train up there, which was, you know, that was like 11. Uh, I don't know, 11, 12 hours on the train. I had, tw I got 20 drawings done in that time. And, and it was a people who were sitting talking. It was ideas in my head. It was things I saw going by. It, it was uh, observational. It was also imaginative. You know, a lot of stuff got done on those 20 pages in that, in that day. And um, it's because there's a, there's some spontaneity involved in how I, approach a page if if i'm going to a coffee shop i go to all the time i'm looking for somebody interesting i'm looking for an angle and i'm dependent upon how things are going to array there but I pretty much no going to go capture people a coffee a coffee machine uh i go to this this uh, talk which was over black lives matter and there were cameras there so i wanted to record people recording the discussion. I wanted to have an audience. I wanted to have a speaker, and I wanted to have press there. So I like the idea that I'm observing, observers observing. You know, so that's maybe something that pushes the drawing. 
Um, and if I'm going out for the day and I have to work, I'm going to carry a few things, maybe one book. Uh, something that's going to give me a strong line, uh, some amount of something that gives me some amount of ability of some detail, like maybe a fat line, a thin line, and then a brush nibs that are bigger and can cover better. Maybe it's going mm -hmm. to be all grayscale, so I'm not sitting here switching mm -hmm. out into colors. Um, if I'm going someplace like the Chicago Botanic Gardens, and I just know yeah. it's a beautiful day, then I'm going to bring a load of color with me. And if I'm yeah. traveling across the country, I usually have a lot of stuff. Of a uh -huh. lot of stuff that, that gives me more options. If I go to court, courts want color imagery. They don't just want black and white drawings. So you have to come with something that captures it. And one day I came with a box of pens and a zip bag full of pens and a vest full mm -hmm. of pens. And I had the black and gray stuff on my vest. I had the flesh tones in my hat and I had so I had, it was pretty crazy, big array of stuff. Yeah. And fortunately I did because isn't this guy with this beautiful orange hair and a peacock color shirt set in front of me. And I got him because I had the colors, right? <laughs> and there's a, there, there's days when I go out and it's the, the tool I want, I, I didn't bring. So um, I usually have, I usually have about eight minimal minimal is about five six six to six to eight or nine things which was a fountain pen uh some grays light grays something big because uh again to the issue of drawing rapidly that if i've got a big brush it covers so drawing efficiently is more of an important concept so having having a couple of different nib sizes and shapes means when it comes to doing a big roof just get it done quickly if, then if i need brickwork i do something sharp i use my fingers if they get inky and that gives me some textures and that all tends to make the drawing rich and pushes how quickly i can describe something so you know sometimes it's just a small satchel other times other times um if i'm going to go draw and it's a urban environment and i realize there's not going to be a lot of white then i start on tone paper and that's already got my two values already taken care of. And then I have a couple of things. I just put highlights. So I do think strategically at times of what, what's going to accomplish the job. How did you, how did you come to start using dry markers? Was, was that always your first way of like your favored way of approaching color? Or did you try some other media for a while as well? Well, um, back in college, Pencil is just going to smudge in a sketchbook. I mean, it's a beautiful tool. I love pencil. I love the, all the different things you can do with it. There's watercolor pencils. I, I, graphite's a beautiful medium. I like it. But it, it does have the problem occasionally it will transfer page to page. And then I was drawing with uh, some, I mean, I was a ballpoint guy for since I was about, I mean, like in my sophomore year in college in my sketchbooks of junior year, I switched. I was just drawing an ink ballpoint. I love ballpoint. I was drawing on line paper. So it's just what you, you, what you used when you were a student, right? I thin flat paper and ballpoints and, but coloring and covering and filling in was just so time onerous that I eventually started moving towards brush nibs. Also, because they gave me a fat line, and as a printmaker, I was influenced by woodcuts, which have nice, big, meaty 
like you think of Dewar or you think of some other people, that that line was strong. And with a ballpoint, you're drawing like this to make one line. So to get something and knock it in, bang, bang, bang. And, um, and so I started using this, but some of the stuff I used was not waterproof. You spill a drink and you're drawing, get up and float away. So I started trying to find stuff that was waterproof, and, but I could still smudge it or layer it. And um, I just kept playing with different stuff. And I would use, I would use it, I would give anything I could find, I would give it a chance. You know, if it gave me a line that I liked, I, I liked wet, big, juicy ballpoints. So if I was in a bank lobby and I was, signing, I was using one of their pens and I was signing a check and that line was just beautiful. Would go, it would walk out the door with me, you know. That's how we all get our found uh, our ball pens, yeah. right? We swipe them from yeah. someone else. <laughs> so I just and and you know, I mean, I use my hand. So having a big brush nib just means you know you go and you dab the page, and uh, you know, I, I I used grease pencils. I use a lot of stuff. It's all gonna. Some of them pick up the texture of the paper better than other ones. Since I use I use watercolor, I use hot press cold press and i switch books out a lot because sometimes I, I need a different effect i want to see it behave differently and um if i'm getting like you talked about paper being too precious that was the nice thing about ledger books especially if they'd already had people writing in them it's already a mess so it's easy to kind of just relax and get in there it's a good way to it's a good way to get the load off and you think that this paper doesn't really matter like uh, I told people in my workshop last year that for these next three hours, these were three hour long workshops, that for the next three hours, you're only going to make really bad drawings. And I want you to really accept that fact just so you set yourself free and you don't yeah. think about how your drawing is going. The whole point is to draw badly and just the various ways basically to free your mind from this burden, right? Sure. I mean, what, I've been drawn for how many decades? A long time. And there's days when, when uh, you know, I'm wooden and frozen and stiff and, and, and you're not in the zone and you're self-conscious. And anything you can do that can get yourself out of that hypercritical self-conscious realm and just be playful is, is very helpful sometimes. And uh, I remember guys telling me, said, you know, you could sell those drawings if they weren't on that line paper, but like, but the line paper gave me so many attributes, right? It just took ink differently. It, the, the pins glided across it there. And, you know, actually some people actually bought them and they liked them. So I, I just tried to, to expand the palette, you know? It's this curious quality that if you draw in a sketchbook, like it's it's such a common sentiment to think that it's less valuable than say art on some kind of canvas on on the wall. But like there's this uh, quality of it being in the moment, like how you also describe you're drawing not only what you see, but you're also describing how you are as a person on that day in that moment with those thoughts at which are running through your head at that time. So. It's this compelling quality that sketches have. And I've sold a lot of my art in this way that people seem to want the print of a drawing which has the crease of the sketchbook on it. And they don't want me to raise that crease. Mm. Well, you, 
you know, the, you get to see the mind at work. You get to see uh, revision. Now, you can have finished art that certainly shows that kind of stuff, Larry Rivers or somebody like that. But, but when you look at a sketchbook that's not intended to be a final image, you just it's exploratory. And you're you're watching an animal run back and forth across a field, trying to remember where it hid the hid the food source, or it's something caught its attention. So it's improvisational, and and it's and you can see that somebody is like pentimenti, the concept of changing minds and repent, or five minds or whatever. You can see a mind mulling something over, turning something before it, and that is always been exciting to me always been exciting to me and and you you know it's the same way with somebody's touch if you can see somebody that touches the page a certain way or if you can feel hesitancy i mean david hockney drew for so many years with a rapidograph which is produces a monofilament of a line it doesn't vary and it's so precise that if you hesitate and then you pick up again, you're going to notice that little bump in the line, right? And some things as you move with them, it seems to be very forgiving and seems much more flowing again. But that little guy, if you change your mind or you hesitate, it's, it's it has a strange kind of character about it that looks like an encephalograph or something that monitors earthquakes. In other words, I feel it felt to me like you can see him breathe. You can see him his heartbeat or a pause or anything like that. And, and, and uh, th there are times when the materials help describe who you are and the state you're in and, and how you're feeling. And if there's a flow to the drawing or there's a hesitancy to the drawing. And that's what's so nice in sketchbooks, that the sketchbooks can be very revealing of, of, uh, of the the mindset or the of the forcefulness of the artists at that time, their personality. And I just absolutely adore that, you know? I mean, I like that that touch is it's it's vigorous or it's hesitant. And there's a lot, lot, lot of of what's going on that you're able to sit in on when somebody's doing that. And um, that's a that's where a sketch a sketchbook becomes uh, a document and it becomes a document about process and, and thought process and for, for me that if I had questions about artists and you'd see a finished painting it's like let me see the sketchbooks that's that's a good point it's almost like it in in a way then if you're covering an event or you're at a location like say a courtroom for example a sketchbook in and a sketch is offering you so much more information than say a simple photograph. And I often think of the way we consume media these days in the terms of how much information we're giving out. And I think that, you know, with phone and everybody having being online all the time, we have this tremendous access to images, like uh, camera images and videos. So irrespective of whether you're a discerning viewer or whether you're just a normal person, you quickly get overwhelmed by by this kind of photography. And in that time, I'm, I'm thinking about the kind of information that photography dumps on a person, that every time you see a photograph, you're assaulted with all this information that's, uh, that's contained in this photograph. And in that 
situation. A sketch, on the other hand, gives you a very precise amount of information. Like we were talking about just with the framing itself, you're controlling the information just by the amount of detail you give to something and then you withhold detail from something else. You are, you are, you are making a decision and making that image simpler for a viewer to understand. Yes, and you're, you're also showing them what you picked up on. Um, for example, because it, again, because it takes place over a period of time, if somebody's in the way, you can stretch the court, you can move somebody, you can, you can adjust the room, you know, when you draw. And I remember a court case I was listening to, and it was a, a family of Af African-American family, and he was a police officer. And she was an educator. It was a very successful family, two kids. And the young, the young boys, three and five at the time, were high-achieving kids. They were very happy, right? And his job was to go into the community and act like a drug dealer he, and find his way up the chain and get an idea of what the drug organization was. He was undercover. And he'd been a cop for a bunch of years. He'd been an MP. So he's very capable. And he was, somebody told the police department that this guy was a drug dealer and he was this and he was that. So the tactical unit didn't vet him out properly and didn't realize he was a, he was a big police department. So they broke into the house one night, traumatized the whole family shook the neighbors up the neighbors didn't know what to make of this damaged the house and they took a bunch of years in getting it to court like about four or five years to get to court and so i was there covering this case so it was cop versus cop right and one of the things i noticed was these two young boys in the family when i came in the younger one was just kind of doodling and getting sleepy and bored you know in the proceedings but the other one was now third was about 13, old enough to know what's going on, old enough to follow the conversation. And so at one point, they said, and I'm drawing, I'm trying to figure out, you know, you're trying to get, what's the story I'm drawing? So I'm sitting there and I'm listening to this. And they said that the boys had been getting A grades and good students and all of this, well-adjusted. After that, they were sleeping with their parents. They acted out all the time their grades went in the toilet and they were bedwetters and i'm thinking this 13 year old kid is having to have this part of his life talked about in front of a bunch of people and and he was sitting in front of me and then the the table with his family his mom and his dad and the lawyers was there the judge was there and the jury was over here and i drew that scene with this young kid who was having to sit there by himself and, and and hear and hold it together and hear this kind of stuff and so that that moment and trying to draw this kind of thing which pulled so much out of me about how would i feel that empathy and describe the moment maybe a little text to to do that how you frame the image up there were so many factors that were weighing on me to catch that moment and to describe what I experienced and how I felt about that. Um, that 
that was very challenging. That was that was that was a thing that was which tapped into so many things which we do when we go out and we draw that day. You know, you getting this information and the information just becomes more and more compelling. And how quickly can you be on top of this situation as it's developing? Uh, and and I think that was the moment to turn the case because the lawyer for the other side is now my friend and my lawyer. And and they lost. The family won the decision and they got a lot of money. And because uh, I said the they, they were fighting. They used to be a happy couple. They were fighting. It was all kinds of problems. So the, the jury gave them the decision and they won. And in, in it, I had drawings of the, I sent you, was a, the lawyer's got his hands on the guy's shoulders like, this is my son. This is a good guy, right? And you could see all of these ways that his body language was trying to communicate to the jury. And then as I watched the jury, when they talked about that child, the jury froze. It was... <laughs> You can see, you can, there's moments when you can see in court, there's body language that they all start to, they laugh or else they tighten up. And, and that was, I was trying to capture that and impart something of that to the, whoever looked at the drawings, you know, I mean, that's, that's so much of what I've tried to do with the, with the craft is to come out there and, and, and increase what I might read of a situation, what I might be able to garner from it. And then the, the, the challenge of the craft is how much of that is now can you impart? Yeah. And the, the kind of time that you're spending there and then you're absorbing these moments that happen and you catch the reactions of different people to it who are going to be in your scene in various ways. It's almost like, like the drawing at the end is not a drawing of a moment. It's a very complex uh, environment with a lot of events happening over the course of the time that you're drawing it and even before, but all of it is encapsulated inside a single image. And working on that image for that time, it kind of lets you absorb the various influences as they happen. And then you give them space accordingly. And then, you know, the, the drawing in, in that sense, it's so much more superior to a single photograph because a single photograph just captures that literally that millisecond in which it was taken. Yeah, because as I'm drawing them, he was sitting by himself and I, and I was trying, I was trying to capture as on, you know, on a book as much as you can. It's very hard because the courtroom goes like this. It's, it's the courtroom's panoramic. So as Paul Heaston tries to get a room onto a page, how much of a, how much of a narrative scene can you get where maybe you have to move things so you can see them? Because if you're sitting, if you're, if that's a situation when you, when you're in a urban sketching and you're seated in a seat, your position's fixed. So now what do you do? And just as, just as Paul uses uh, an umbrella perspective, which is different than two point or three point perspective, there's different ways that you bring the viewer into the situation and, and enhance the information that they have and, and give them something that's telling. And that's what I was, as I was setting the drawing up, the narrative was going on. I was listening to the case and it was, became clear where I had to take the drawing. Say, well, if I just I'm pop, 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 maybe I'm, people are in the way, right? I can't ask them to move out of the way so the camera can catch that. So there is a lot of options when you're drawing that you have to manipulate 
and and orchestrate the scene in front of you and still get a sense I still get a sense that it's veritas that there's a truth to the moment yeah like i i just mentioned that uh, drawing in a way strips away information that a photograph kind of overwhelms you with but i should maybe it's more correct to think that it even adds a layer of information that a photograph is incapable of adding just by these kind of creative decisions you're talking about they're they're different i'm a guy that does definitely look at a lot of photography and likes it tries to learn something about photography and i i like single image i like the power of single image it's very easy to walk away with a single image you know and and have that sustain be very very strong it's it's, it's all right there and 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 it's sometimes there's some images that are so powerful that even a brief exposure to them has, has got immense sustain um so I, you know, I like both of them, but the nice thing about the sketchbook, especially if you're drawing this in court, I try to get six drawings a day, six to seven drawings a day. That helps the narrative if you've got several pages. But when, you, when you've when got one page, to be able to orchestrate and manipulate and edit is, is in, invaluable at times. I mean, it really, you have to have it. You know, I mean... There's so many things about drawing, first off, for most of us, it's binocular vision. So stuff is shifting around. So if it's, it's you know, if it's already doing that, why not just go ahead and push it even further, uh, which you see. And, you know, when I've been on for demonstrations and they're walking, I'm drawing as they're walking. I'm drawing sometimes with them as well. So they pause, I get some figures, they pause. And, and you're capturing not... exactly what's going on which it's a distillation of what's going on and it's it's and it's it's important to know that the the distinction and that the distillation can bring some enhancement or information to the game as well right Uh, that that it it can really flesh out a moment in a way that, that for, for a guy, again, is back to being the filmmaker, wannabe, I, I sort of like to do that. <laughs> so uh, I know a lot of artists who draw purely architecture. And then I know a lot of urban sketchers who are just very focused on vast cityscapes. So not even just a single building. And and I also know some urban sketchers like, uh, like myself who primarily focus on the people but I look at your work and I see you're kind of jumping all over the place like I see some pages which look like it's just about the building and you found this beauty in like the details of the building the architectural details and then there are pages which are just about the person itself so do you see something inherently different when you're trying to capture a building versus when you're trying to capture a person well you know the physics of light being what they are they're going to be the same no matter what you're looking at geometry plays a role in figures as just as much as it does in, in buildings and and then there's a whole way in which you manipulate contours there's contour prioritization to enhance something near or far there's how you work with contrast there's uh with there's a idea of do things sit squarely on a plane you know as though are those feet on the same plane there's there's, there's a lot of things that you you 
have to contemplate if you want the drawings maybe to be solid, right? For things to have a, a recession into space that makes sense, or so some of that's some of that's the same. It's a it's a it's a rich experience. Any day you go out, it's a rich experience, and and there's different things to to, to focus on. As far as posting online, I've noticed that on Facebook and on Instagram, you are rewarded if you have a narrow body of work. They reward consistency. They're, you're focusing on you're focusing on keeping a journal in coffee houses, and you talk about how good the coffee is, and and you contrast all the coffee cups, and and you're using this pen. And you would think that you would wear your audience out. You would lose the, the audience would diminish. I have found that when I jump around and do live nude drawings or I go out and I draw, you know, because drawing nude drawings informs how I understand other characters. Drawing people in spaces and having the ability to draw some buildings means gives me more ability. To, but if I do in these things and I jump around, I have found that sometimes you are not rewarded by the um, algorithms of the social media that they that they like that you're I don't want to say pigeonholed but that they, they like that you have that you're covering a genre that you're thematically focused and that's just not the way I am I like being versatile like for a long time I didn't I didn't want to draw straight lines <laughs> I didn't want to draw I didn't want to draw buildings. And then, you know, cars, cars have all those obliques and all those kind of things. And it's like, that's not what I was caught up in. I was caught up in human interaction and dynamic confrontations and stuff like that. And so I whittled everything out away from that. And then I've been bringing them back in. And uh, I've been a student of architecture. I love that, that you look at the, a, a city and you have an archaeological experience of aesthetics. And then there is just the dynamics of a society. Does it function gracefully together or is it a society in conflict? Is it possible to hold societies together that are so disparate in need and temperament and philosophies? And to me, that's a seriously compelling story. So I, 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 I have to say that for me, I want my blogs and I want my social media to be rich. And the sketchbooks, I want the sketchbooks to be rich, rich in a variety of themes and rich in a variety of techniques. Touching upon variety of themes, I'm very curious to know what possessed you to draw cadavers. Because I don't, I can't think of anyone else who might be enthused about the idea, and I can't think of anyone else who would give it the kind of time you gave it. So you went to Northwestern Hospital, if I'm not wrong. Rush, Rush, Rush Hospital in downtown Chicago, and you were drawing cadavers in their cadaver room, and these are cadavers that medical students otherwise study and work with. Yeah. So can you tell me? Can you tell me what you got from this, and how? How? Why did you end up doing these things? Well, I. Uh... I go to life drawing still. I still go to life drawing sessions and draw from nude models. You know, it continues to enhance my understanding of figures because, uh, you know, I 
do images out of my head, that I draw figures in, that I have clothes on, but to know what the structure is, substructure. So substructure is very important when you look at buildings, when you look at, at uh, people, you know, anything. You just, just have a sense of the substructure. And I was a science major for three years. Um, so it was biochem. And, you know, I didn't cut, I didn't work on human cadavers, but cut a few things open. And I'm totally thrilled by doing that stuff. I'm investi investigating, you know, I couldn't wait, couldn't wait to get into working on the cats and dogs and humans and stuff like that. And I'm absolutely fascinated. I mean, I'm, I'm you know, fascinated with the human body. And, and da, da Vinci and Michelangelo both worked on cadavers. And that investigation to me is, is imbued in the craft of art. Because art is an intellectual pursuit of knowing thyself and knowing the world, you know, right? and, and, and getting in there and seeing these and understanding how it really works. And the human body is such a, an, just bodies in particular, but they're just the mechanics and they're just this, this thing, this machinery that's been animated. The whole thing, the psychology of humans, the, the mechanisms of human, all of it fascinates me, and it, and and muscles. So I had the opportunity to do that, and uh, after years and years and years of being away from the sciences, where I thought I was going to do that, I actually had the chance to go back and do that, and it, it is external. It's a it was a great opportunity. Of course, the coronavirus shut that down. Uh, once we get past this period of time, it'll go back up again, and I'll get back in there. Um, and also to watch people, again, one of the things that I do in my sketchbooks is I like watching people engaged in an activity. I don't just want to draw a person that looks like a person. It's like, what are they doing? So I love drawing people at work. And when I was going and drawing those anatomy, the, the bodies, I was also drawing students working on the bodies. So that was where the experience I had drawing in urban sketching and drawing in courtrooms of, of drawing people in, that weren't holding still and engaged in activity, but also the activity of investigation, and, you know, inquiry. I mean, that, that to, to, the, the whole situation, plus you could answer a lot of questions and then you could just go through a body week by week. They would be dissecting the body further and further. So you would work your way down through from the skin down to the, muscles and sinews and things and and there was nothing about it that wasn't absolutely compelling and uh, awe-inspiring you know and and um i liked that everything about it i liked that the person there on the table and their family had decided it was important to give themselves to science to gifts for, for knowledge and to help the next generation to know how to do this you know, so I was also documenting an activity. I was documenting a resource. In a way, you were documenting the contribution of a life even after it has passed away. Absolutely. You know, and, and I think that that's where art belongs. I think that artists belong following these processes. Uh, there was an artist who several artists have gone to war. And they say war is one of the most important things that societies engage or confront. 
an artist should be. There's a role for arts in all of life and documenting and, and covering and thinking about and bringing that perspective to it. So, yeah, there's, um, I've wanted to sign off so that I could sit in the back of a police car on their evenings, draw them. Uh, I have gone and documented homeless encampments, which is a form of a refugee camp. I just think that's what we, where we belong. You know, it's, it's, we belong doing a lot of things, designing fashion and designing cars and designing interiors and designing product. And, you know, th there's a wide world for arts to investigate. And I go around and I talk to young people and do demonstrations to seniors and artists and students and whatnot. And, and I don't want them to think about art in this very little narrow practice. The way that we talked about, well, when you draw an urban environment, are you just drawing the buildings? Are you drawing the activity or the the failings of an urban environment, the shortcomings? Like, for example, infrastructure that's coming down. I ask people if they could tell a non-artist to pick up urban sketching or simply drawing from observation, you know, what would that one reason be that you could give to a non-artist? But I feel like I feel like all of the questions that I've asked you have sort of been about that. You have. I feel like you've, you've led us to that. It really is, what, what, what do they get out of it, right? I get, maybe I look to get a lot more out of it, but I do think that it contributes to a person's understanding and, and focus. And for some people, it's relaxing. For some people, it's, it's exciting and enhancing. But it is the prolonged look. That's what it is. You know, like a, photography was the frozen look, which allowed you to capture a moment and really to see something. Um, but when you draw, it's like that phrase that he or she who writes reads twice. I just think that when you draw, there's this, we're in a rush. We're in a rush about doing things. We're in a rush to have this, take a million pictures of a sunset, do all this kind of stuff, multitask. One of the most compelling things about drawing for me is that it slows you down. There's a deliberativeness to it. There's a contemplativeness of it. There's a being in the moment. And, and there's the continued engagement with this thing. You're not tapping a keyboard. You're using, you're using this hands in which the tool becomes another bone in the hand. And, and, and I think that just as our eyes are so important and our ears are so important, our nose, our taste, of knowing the world around us, this is still one of the most sophisticated things they have not been able to totally duplicate. And this is such a big reason why human beings are so intelligent. This thing grabs a lot of information. It, it, it describes so much, it articulates so much. It, it, it brings your focus to something. There's this dance between the eye and the hand that's so nice. And if they can just get away from the idea that they have to be good at this craft and it has to be perfect or they have to draw like this person, or that person, because even though we train to do that sort of thing, the beautiful thing is when you're done and you see the drawing, there's personality on the page. Yeah. So I, I, I would just, I kind of encourage people to go for it for, for that sort of engagement with the world around you. you know? mm -hmm. All right. So, Don, this has been a really fantastic conversation.
I've enjoyed and it. Yeah. Although, although I've spoken to you about so many things on so many times before, I feel like again I've learned a whole bunch of new things about you and your art. Well, I like what I like where you're able to take the podcast. I think it's is a great idea. I'm excited about about uh, what you're doing with this. So I appreciate to be part of it. fun to listen to and that you are excited for the second conversation just a note that there was some construction noise on don's end of the recording and so intermittently you might hear a hammer and uh, some kind of power tool but uh, i hope it won't spoil the experience of the conversation at all i also want to share with you that every week i write the best insights from this podcast on my free email newsletter the sneaky art post If you have ideas from listening to this show and would like to learn more or if you would like to share your thoughts and add to the discourse find the link in the show notes and sign up to receive the sneaky art post in your inbox All right let's get to it So uh Vancouver is a good is a good match Vancouver is quite interesting. It's uh it's much smaller than Chicago, so the downtown area is where we live and it's much smaller than Chicago also. But it's got a very interesting geography. So there are mountains right outside my window and on all three uh, on three sides and then the fourth side is the ocean. So and we are quite close to the water and I really enjoy that. Are you are you within walking distance of down, downtown? Yeah, yes. Yeah and so there's a lot to walk around there are the public transport is great there are a lot of so what's interesting is there are a lot more i feel even more than chicago there are a lot more small independent cafes and chicago would have a bunch of chains in the downtown area so you'd have argo tea you'd have starbucks you'd have these various uh, uh, caribou coffee or these other chains but here i see way more independent small cafes and it's a, a little bit more colorful in that sense hmm nice i rode around when i was there um i stayed pretty much downtown um in a hotel and then i rode around with the filmmaker that i was working with and i went to the different three locations of opus art so i got around a little bit and you know they have the 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 principal store is on that beautiful little island. Yeah, right. Exactly. That's my favorite one actually. Yeah. Yeah. And um and I think pretty amazing. Well, I'm but it but it is a beautiful part of the world. Yeah. Yeah. I've I've spent well, it took me a little bit of time to get used to this place and then I started to venture out and I feel like I still haven't quite seen most of the parts of what is metro vancouver so there's a lot to explore there's a lot to see and every time i go out there's something new and yeah. even the old places are quite fascinating so i'm right by the water and just heading towards the water there's so much always and and you said it took you a while to get used to what was it you were getting used to well just being in a completely different place with a different weather pattern so for example we got here in january and until march it was just raining and it was gray like there was hardly any sunshine then i think by the time i got like it it's taken me like maybe 4 or 5 months to understand 
this place, that these are the places that are fun to go to. These are the places that are interesting. These are the places where uh, so-and-so kind of people are found and these are other kinds of places. So just getting that kind of mental map of the city, it took me a little bit of time. And now I feel reasonably comfortable here. Well, where do you want to, where do you want to take these? I, I listened to your interview mm-hmm. um, and I made some notes and I wrote down some things and I thought about a few stuff. A few yeah. things. So um, where do you want to launch? It's been a year since we spoke. It's been a little longer than a year, in fact, since we spoke. So I guess uh, how I want to start is I want to know how these two years of COVID have been for you and with this idea of how you use the sketchbook, the uh, you know all these plans of being outdoors, being curtailed, and leading a more indoorsy life, leading a more disconnected life from society in so many ways, we're in these isolated silos. What's it been like? Like, how has your sketchbook changed? How has your sketching evolved in this time? Well, uh, for me, I've drifted from showing in galleries and producing work that was finished, resolved, mm-hmm. and... and um, presented for sale. Uh, so that, that changed probably about 2008. And I segued into doing more of what I do now, which is the reportage, just drawing, and also just thinking out loud in the sketchbook. So that didn't change. Um, I did a few things, but everything kind of tends to be done in the sketchbooks now. So I would make stories um, because I, for, for three months, Jamila and I were separated. My wife and I were separated. I went up to Evanston where I maintained my house and, and that's where my formal studio is. And she was downtown. And then that was when the shit hit the fan and there was runs on toilet paper and everything in the stores were getting you know, vacuum cleaned. And I just thought, you know what, Jamila, let me just, let me just stay up here for a while until we get a sense of what's going on because I don't know what I've been exposed to. So to protect her and each other, we stayed apart. And that was when you, know, you were just not engaging. And I think that was certainly a time when the internet became very, very valuable to a lot of people. And it was on, on it a lot, watching. And But I continued to do what I have done because a lot of my years, I was very good about just getting into the studio and working. Um, uh, you know, I was always trying to work towards shows back then. And then I occasionally did illustration work. Um, this was just without any idea of how I would show the work. It was just working, you know, which is something I've always done. I've always maintained sketchbooks and just, that's how I think. That's how I process stuff. And, and some of it was about the events that were going on. Like I took a few shots at some politicians and I would post caricatures of, of them and uh uh would i set up still lives in my apartment and did little images i think i did one of where i used a a little figure with patches all over his face and i made a story up about him being cut up by the cats on our, on our property that we have um so i did a little bit of that and i just worked through a lot of ideas and slowly, I think people were kind of 
testing, going out and mass staying masked up. So that was what I was recording, you know, as well how people were getting back out into public and you know, now everybody was wearing masks and, and that had to be part of the story. Yeah. Um so I I've I've also just been committed to the practice. You know, I just draw as much as I can every day. And you know, I about that time I had negotiated with two different companies to get online fees because I'm always online doing stuff and um, that helped me get through that period financially because I wasn't doing any of the other stuff, the catering. I had stopped traveling the country. They they put the kibosh on that so I couldn't go to universities and lecture and, you know. So I just hunkered down, which is not unfamiliar to me. Many, many years of my life, when I was single or whatever, and I just, I just went to the job. I made money, whatever that was, contracting or, or bartending, and went back home and just worked. You know, but it was in time. It was important to get back out there and just try and draw people, contending with what was going on. Right? Did uh, was there like this while you were indoors? confronting this idea that you know like this idea that the world has suddenly been reduced like to the walls of our homes and we have to find things inside it to interest us and sometimes even once you uh, were once we are able to go outdoors the radius of the places we are able to go to our radius has decreased so we are not able to really venture far away or we're not able to do all the same things. There was a little period of time when I was nervous to get on the bus, for example, because I didn't want to be around anybody who was defiantly not wearing a mask, for example. So yeah, there, not, were there, there were lots of them. There were lots of those people. So if you're not going to take the bus, you're reduced to where you can walk to or things, uh, things of that nature. And that, that does something that crimps this natural curiosity. It crimps the natural style. So did you encounter that kind of obstacle? For sure. For sure. For sure. I mean, that was, I'm, I'm the, you know, I'm of my society. A lot of the things right. that they go through, I, I, I feel, I understand, you know, I'm, I'm submitted to it. And, um, uh, you know, I was older, so I was going to be higher up on the priority of getting shots. And I'm a, I'm one of these guys as a military brat. I got shot, shots and vaccinations all throughout my life. I mean, I remember when we, when my family moved to Turkey and I was in the sixth grade, right before leaving my family, we went down to the, to the base and, and I got two shots in one arm and two shots in the other arm and then something I'm like, wow, I had five vaccinations in one day. <laughs> you know, like, I survived that. Um, so I was, I mean, there were people dying. There were people dying uh, very close to me in Evanston. There was nursing homes where people were dying. Uh, six in one nursing home. And it was a big college. So there was a lot of young people. And it was interesting to watch them as to which ones would, would mask up and which ones wouldn't, you know. Um, so I was taking notes. I was, I was looking at that kind of stuff. But I had, and I'm, I'm married now. But this, I got married last this past September, so 
my my wife and I, you know, we were separated for three months. You know, we had not yet married, but she was my fiance. We were separated for three months, and we certainly talked and texted a lot. And, and but um, I had a real impetus to get back downtown to see her, so I needed to go out. And we, she came up, and we had a lunch where we were masked up and st- went out, and had a picnic. We tried that, and then we did another one afternoon event, and then because I didn't want to get her sick, I didn't want to carry something down and get her sick. But after about three or four little meetings, you know, I, I, I stayed. Oh, we spent a night, and then once we got where well, we were close to each other. We definitely limited our contact with other people, but I still had to travel back and forth because my mail arrived in Evanston and my wife was down in <laughs> Chicago and I had, I had eight miles to trek on public transportation. I don't have a bicycle and uh, I did it, you know, and I drew people on the bus with and without and you know the mask down here and the mask up here it's like <laughs> it's like all of these different ways some of them wearing it almost like a yarmulke like nowhere near their their mouths um and uh, you know i just tried to use again the the my artwork the sketchbook is the way to document um that think out loud and the stories online was the major culture wars you know with this with this hot potato of, of the pandemic vaccination thing and uh, that was remarkable to see so uh did a lot of reading you know my wife is an immunologist and so she was reading that. She was checking the numbers every single day. And she's Italian. So her country was in a, a downward spiral. She's, she's from Lombardy. And Lombardy was, was the hardest hit. It was one of the, was it one of the early red zones. Um, in fact, we went, when I went back last September, we went to Bergamo. It's a beautiful hilltop town north of Milano, where she's from. And she loves it. It's beautiful. Well, we went there, but that was a death zone. Refrigeration trucks were going up there. The the military in Italy actually cordoned off a few places. You know? And I, you know, we went through this crazy period of the riots and the pandemic and all that stuff. So there was lots of stuff to talk about and think about in the sketchbook. And that's where I kept doing that, right? I would see things online. I I didn't expose myself to some of the the early rights because they were still co- coinciding with the pandemic. So I was seeing it from afar. I mean, because um, I principally was trying to keep my wife alive. Right? I didn't care about myself. I'm an old man. If I go out and do something, and the consequences are I come home with a virulent disease, okay. But I did not want to be a conduit to other people, and um, so I had to be dependent upon social media. Whereas in the past, you know, the idea was you draw from 
life and we got out in the midst of it. So it was a mixture of when I would travel back and forth, then I would be drawing among my citizenry in my city. And then part of the time I would be back and I would be drawing out of my head and, and, and processing the things that were happening. And that has always been the role the sketchbook has played for me. It is, it is this form for, can you hear that? I can actually. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry. They're doing work upstairs. Uh Um, uh, but it's, it's always been a way for me to, to process personal issues. Um, the world around me, my niche in that society, my times, the, the good stuff, the best stuff. It all has, it all has to take place at some time in mm-hmm. the sketchbook. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So um, traveling to Italy, and I feel like in one way you, it was a chance to to get out of this this world that we had been stuck in during the pandemic. So this was your first big trip after the pandemic had struck. Uh, tell me a little bit about it. Where did you go? What did you see? Was it liberating in some senses to be in a new place, new place with your sketchbook? Sure. I mean, I, I, you know, for ten years I've been traveling the country, right? You know, lecturing and talking and doing that. So you know, I hadn't been, I wasn't doing it, and it was, you know, it's, it was fun to, to get out, and it's also fun to go to to another culture and to Europe, and and I have not, I have not. Um, acquired a second, you know, an Italian yet. She's working on me, but it's slow getting in into the noggin. So wonderful to travel also with somebody who can make things more accessible to you as far as language wise. But you know, it's interesting is that when you don't have the language, you are definitely dependent upon vision and watching and drawing and processing. And again, I've always said that you know one of the nice things about drawing is that it's slow and so you kind of have to stick around and watch things evolve develop and you kind of edit a good bit of the editing is taking place in real time as you're as you're watching so um i was drawing the whole time you know we were over there for three weeks um you know were they masked up were they taking precautions you know what you saw the same thing as you saw here you saw some people who were resistant and and you know jamila would be in the cab we'd be in a cab and the cab driver would be going off and she would be talking with him and i could tell from her voice that we had stretched they had strayed into a topic that she wasn't happy with happy with right and so we had some cab drivers that were saying, this is a bunch of nonsense. Why are we we're doing this? Well, you know, and I would be drawing the cab driver, <laughs> you know, as he's going off and talking. And, the, you know, they would have their mask on, but they, some of them railed against it. So, you know, you, even in an area which had seen horrible consequences from the pandemic and is still fighting it, um, there was a variety of notions about about it and I was watching that and I went to some events I got you know I got married and I we, we, we were there we went to a friend's wedding and so you were sitting outdoors in this big piazza with the, uh, these long tables and 40 people sitting around drinking and talking and not one of us not a one of us 
me included, was wearing a mask. Um, and I had been vaccinated at that time because you couldn't travel without being vaccinated. If you weren't an Italian citizen, there's no way you were going to get into that country up until that point. They've opened it up a little bit. But you had to show your vaccination card to get on the plane. And now on the plane, that's where they can do more stringent about making requirements of what you have to do. And they don't monkey around, right? So I just kept... I kept drawing and um, I was very interesting in going to Bergamo because Bergamo was probably, you know, I was reading a book by Arthur and Hatcher called Black Death. I started reading that early in the pandemic about England, what it was like when the, when the Black Plague hit. And Bergamo was happening while I was reading that book. You know, it's like people just don't quite know what to do about this and i think that one of the things is a guy who's a, what i draw in a, as a reflecting on my society i think we're all shell-shocked for a lot of reasons you know you talked about the cost of living and i talk about what it is to to get by day to day and how many artists have to have dual lives to just be an artist it's very hard financially. It's very, very difficult. And, you know, the cost of education, the cost of housing, uh, the you know, medicine, the cost of medicine, pandemics are hitting. You know, I, I think it's just partially one of the things I was watching is that there's this people are emotionally really taxed. And so we were seeing. You know, and I was going to rallies. I went to the women's rally and I would draw on those rallies. And you would see a lot of, you know, sisterhood, get together. We can do things positive. But I would also, I mean, I missed the, the Charlottesville rally. That's where my mother's family's from. So I went there for a family event three weeks, three months before, less than three months before the rallies took place. I think you see sometimes some very inarticulate expressions of frustration. They're spasmodic. And I felt that living in a pluralistic society has been really, really engaging and wonderful. I also lived in Turkey, which was less so when in 19, 1965. So there's a lot of benefits to living in pluralistic societies. But right now, what I see and have seen for a couple of decades is the tribalism is getting to us and the lack of communication. and that's one of the things when you get on a train and you draw and you see some people on board with the program, some are not on board with the program and there's anger and there's, um, it's, it's manifesting itself in a lot of different ways. Now, an interesting side note, as I've traveled on public transportation, I mean, one of the things that comes up in your conversations and I, the last one I just reviewed is like when you're being watched, drawing, documenting, you know, how do people respond to that? And, and do you get permission and what's it like? And are, and you know, many times, most of the times I don't ask for permission because if what, once somebody becomes self-conscious that you're drawing them, are they doing something natural? And if the idea is to catch a person at work and thought at play and, and doing something which is natural and 
closer to how they would behave. And that's a portrait. That's a portrait. That's a different kind of a portrait than one where somebody sits and they put on their best clothes and they hold a posture. And I'm very interested in veritas. You know, I'm very interested in that kind of reality. Um, and so I draw people that are all kinds of different events on the plane to Italy at receptions, you know, the, the weddings and, and then in the cafes and then people talking, sit around talking and stuff like that. But also people who are isolated and struggling and, and, you know, I try, I try to get all of it. So I know that I'm watched and I'm fair game. All right. But I have to say, uh, if I sense that somebody's going to be edgy, you know, I'm very cautious about I do it, how I do it, but I still want to try and do it. I still find it's important. Um, and I had a gentleman on the train. This drink, he was drinking. He was in a bad way and he smelled bad. He looked horrible and he was just going off on me. He seized on me. And um, the tension was rising, you know. He was calling me names. He was making ethnic commentary, racial commentary. And I had a, so I got my sketchbook out because I've experienced this before. I got my sketchbook out, which normally I have it out drawing. I made sure that I'm there, the book is out and I'm drawing. But as he was sort of, you could feel his frustration picking up two guys near me got up and left. They didn't get off the, the, they just, one went away from where we were and another guy went through the door into the next car because they didn't want to be part of what was going to take place. And then he got up and he came over and he sat on the thing and he got right next to me and he saw the drawing and it distracted him momentarily. Yeah, did you do that, right? I said, yeah, I, I do. I draw everywhere I go. And you know, it's interesting. People are interesting. I like drawing people. And I slowly flip in the pages so he could see more. And he would laugh. He goes, you did that. And I said, you know, yep, I did. You know, and sometimes when people see it, I said, do you, do you mind if I, let, let me draw you. That's when I engage with them. And, and he started kind of being amused and, and asking questions about it. And, and I'm you know, talking with him on it and show him. I said, you know, I, People are all different, right? They don't look alike. And it's very tough to try and what is it that makes a person look away? You know, it's just bringing him into the conversation about drawing. And he would see things he would remark. I said, man, that's really good. And at one point, he offered me a drink. You know, this bottle that he was drinking booze out of. And I, I told him that I couldn't do that. I wasn't doing so much of that anymore. I said that... I had a lot of substance abuse in my family and I realized at an early age that I was becoming susceptible. And I said that for me, it never helped me. It just made things more complicated. I said, I had, I said, well, you know, and I'm an older guy now. I said, I'm not a much older guy. I, I've had to be careful about what I do. And I said, it's, it's just, I, I couldn't do it. And he acknowledged that he says, I'm a drunk. He says, well, he says, I'm an alcoholic. I'm all drunk. And I said, my heart goes out to you. And I asked his name. And, and um, I said, listen, my heart goes out to you. I lost relatives to that. 
and uh, I, I had close family members who struggled with it. And I said, you know, it's a tough world if you can be good to yourself for anything else, <laughs> right? I said, I, I have got you in my thoughts, man. I, I'm, I'm pulling for you, you know. Um, treat yourself with as much respect as you can. And, 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 you know, hang in there, hang in there. And, um, I had to get off the train. My stop had arrived and, um, we got a little fist pump from him and said, take care. And off I got, this has happened more than once, twice, more than three times, more than four times. I've encountered a lot of hard guys and the, the sketchbook that has fascinated with them, them. So. Part of it, I think, is that in some communities, they acknowledge that skill sets get you out of your situation. And there's something about the fact that you did this. And this is the a thing about craft that it meant you had to work at it. And because I draw naturalistically, they recognize things <laughs> I sort of can get a person on the page, right? Uh, they know that that doesn't happen overnight, right? And they see that you've done this, and 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 there's this, there's like a, you almost universal respect. It's ridiculous how much, how I mean, guys with gang tattoos have sat down and talked to me about stuff, and and so as I've been out there watching the society and and taking note of the different dynamics that are going going on, I, it's important to put myself in that environment and and to be, so I don't wear headsets, I don't listen to music. I think I, we talked about that the last time, you know, because I want full immersion. And, and I don't want to run away from the society. I mean, I certainly have a fantasy element to what I do. I tell stories, I make things up. But um, I want to get down in the middle of it. And another thing that happened, I guess, about the same time that the pandemic hit is I started working on this sort of graphic novel, graphic novella. I think you've seen maybe some chapters of that. And that's where I combine pure observation, recording what I see, and then I make this imaginary story. I use that as a springboard to little stories. And now whether they're connected or not, is th this thing is evolving and I'm spontaneously doing it and trying to figure out, am I going somewhere with this? Are these things connected? Or can I make a story out of these, these shards, these elements? Can I, can I cobble them together? And how much do I want them to be connected? And how much do I want them to be? like my life with that guy and other people, them kind of going in and out. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's an interesting challenge because, well, I've also considered doing that thing because, well, as we've spoken before, even in person, I came to urban sketching sideways from trying to become a better cartoonist. And my entire goal was to write good comics and to draw better comics. And then when I became an urban sketcher, I started to find this joy in urban sketching and I kept trying to uh, intersect that with telling stories. And so I'm a little curious to know how, what you're thinking about 
the graphic novella, how you want to present it, what are your current ideas about what you will do with it? Well, I've always, you know, I mean, I think in the first conversation that we have, I've, I told you that I always, I, I mean, I've been carrying a sketchbook with me for almost 50 years, right? And many times it was just about drawing, just seeing something and drawing it. But I've been a narrative artist also for most of that time, I would say, you know, what are you looking at? What's, is there a story here? Is the story real or is the story imaginary? And I go back and forth between those kind of things. And, I, and um, as a young guy, I didn't want to be a commercial artist, an illustrator, that kind of a thing where you took on a job. I wanted independence of concept and imagery and ideas. And so I was more, I saw myself more in lines of an auteur or a novelist, right? Um, but I keep playing with the genres, kind of keep coming back and forth, right? Where I'm a reporter one minute and the next minute I'm a novelist. So Carl Hyacinth is a guy that wrote, he was a journalist, but he wrote novels that played off of his experiences as a journalist. And you, you had this conversation with, uh, um, what is her name? The woman that you spoke to about fun, you know, the role of fun in art. Kosher. Yeah. And in it, uh, you, you brought up this sort of two avenues of one being that of an architect and one being that of a gardener. And so it sounds like you just, your comment just then was you might be a bit of an architect, you know, an engineer, you have concept is a purpose served, you know, how do you solve problems? And, and going out and planning something and, and seeing what, what comes of it, you know, maybe for you, 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 you have more of an overview and you have more of like, I can make, I can guide things a certain way. I can develop this and I need to know which way I want to take this. Right. I, I feel both, both of those poles. One is when you draw, you see something and then and if the attempt is to capture what it is you see, you know, you see an overall structure. How are you going to set this up? But in the course of drawing and working on things, whether they take a week or the, um, an hour or a month, and I've worked on some pieces for nine months, I've worked on some pieces for two years, things happen. And if you're open to and responsive to the, the things you didn't plan on, then that, then that changes the direction. And, and as a, in the creative world that I see, and in science as well, you have to be willing to go with that information. I mean, my, my, my wife is a scientist, and she talks about grants. And she says, when you write a grant, it's usually for like, a lot of grants. And she sits on boards awarding grants. So she's both applied. And, and she says, you write for a five-year period, let's say. You want this grant over five years. And whoever the grant endower, uh, uh, you know, the endowment agency, they give you a money, maybe it's by year by year, and they check in on how things are going. But she said, in the course of five years in the sciences, a lot can happen. And somebody could swoop in and <laughs> present the very ideas, fait accompli, that you were working towards. And, and that, or you, you can change your mind because new evidence has now challenged your initial uh, hypothesis or assumptions or Perspective. So you you don't want to be cast in concrete from the get go. I mean, science has to be have to be 
malleable and flexible. And I think the same way in art, because I, you know, was in the sciences for three years and I read some stuff by scientists. I don't find a big gulf of difference in the way some of them think and the way that I think and, and do things as an artist. And so, yeah, things evolve in the course of concept to realization. And you want to be open and attentive and capable of taking advantage of things as they evolve in front of you. So I, I have a foot in both worlds like that. There are some times when a concept comes in your head and it's remarkably clear. And there's this attempt to kind of stay on, on that thing and get this thing. And, and if, if the project happens quickly, it's more likely that that could come out that way. But, and I have experienced that. But I've also experienced things that have just turned out totally different than what I initially imagined. And in a drawing, in the course of a drawing, you know, one of the things you also talked about, which is important, is, and I'll, I'll get back to like money and that kind of stuff, but I'm kind of working my way around there, is that when you work on a computer and a screen there's an evenness of surface there's a pixelation that does things and you talk and, and for me texture is really important you've talked about that with a number of artists touching the page the sound of fountain pens as you go over the page the scratch and the drag and the, or if they have a beautiful nib if it glides and that and and are you fighting the tool or is the tool just fluid is it bringing out this flow in you all of that plays a role and how the image develops many times is the paper sucking the pen, the ink in as the paper sized and the ink is sitting there. So now I'm finger painting like a child, right? And which, in which case it's not a, the same kind of precise hatch, 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 hatch. You've done something and there's the nature of your finger and the roll of it and the fingerprints and the paper and the tooth. And I, I celebrate and I've tried to lose a little control in my life. Trying to both have some develop some facility, but also lose some. I mean, allow allow for the process and the foibles and all that to take place. So, uh, it, in the um, online media, has been for me a huge <laughs> learning curve. A huge learning curve. You've had conversations with me. You know, uh, you know that for me, um, regarding the term fun and art. I definitely tell people to look for, for look for the fun. If I do an illustration job, it's a job. I have somebody's concept. I may not like it, but I got to I got to do this. And so if I'm sitting around thinking, "Oh my god, what's what do I have in front of me?" I try to calm myself down and say, "Okay, where's the fun? Where's the portal of fun?" and get into it that way. But but many times there's aspects of it which are grueling and emotionally taxing and you can't let go. You can't just say, well, screw this. I'm going to drop it. It's a job. You, you know, I, I work it in the studio in my work, which I have nobody sitting on my shoulders. There's not, I don't give a damn what they think. Then I have, then I have jobs where there's a lot of people involved. I just came back from Cleveland where I was filming. I was, I was the, I was the artist and I had a film crew there and I had the company I was working with and they had, you know, they scripts, they had things to say. I didn't like the way some of the things said. We were just like trying to push it this way and that way. The, the, I was trying to sh show different things. And he says, no, nah, because this is easy. So there was many people 
putting the product together. And there's after the first day of shooting that that evening, I just thought, Jesus, this is a mess. Um, I, was I not prepared, or was it just uh, I didn't? They didn't quite get my pitch. I didn't get theirs. They, they want this, want that. How did this go? You know, and you know, it, it, there has to be at that point. You know, at that point, you're really trying to solve problems. And if you can stay lighthearted about it, it's great. It's really wonderful. But <laughs> sometimes you have to push through that, and and I've had to push through the process of being online. You know, I had it, as you spoke. There was a need for me to to find some way of getting out from under the yoke of being in a gallery and a dealer, fifty percent commission and all that kind of shit. And um, I, you know, as, as a lot of artists did, we all have investigated doing things online and um, to touch base with the, you know, like increase my audience, definitely increase my audience. You know, definitely increase the number of people aware of what I do. Um, whether they were familiar with what I did 20 years ago or the direction I took there, Maybe some, because that's on my personal blog, Butt Naked Doodles. So I've had several platforms, and all of them are a time commitment. That's another thing. That's a, you know, balancing your time and and where how do you monetize this? It's been very, very, very hard to monetize the time that I went. I went for 10 years of working online and posting stuff before I got a dime, a sponsorship. Right. right. Yeah, right. Actually, so that's that's kind of the well, the revol revolution is sort of what we are trying to hope it will be in in this sense for the for creators that in this internet that existed even until just two years ago, maybe a year before COVID, it was simply that the only way to make money is that another big company will be interested in you and they will see an opportunity for themselves to make money and you will get a cut of that and hope you can hope that that cut will be decent. And that's the best, that's the best hope. Even though you can reach an audience and grow your audience, you can't, uh, the, the means of uh, monetizing that audience is still dependent on another benefactor in this sense. Well, um, you know, doing, you know, doing Kaiser, you know, his work. No, I do not. He was one of the early guys on a painting a day. Right, and he would do he would film him doing a small painting, and then he had a show. He had a hundred of them, and he showed he sold the show out. He was like a hundred dollars a painting, a hundred dollars. Right, all of a sudden he was selling everything. So it's like every day he was making a hundred bucks. Do a little painting, sell the painting, making a hundred bucks. People could go online, and they were watching his videos, and and that's the other thing. You know, you had to learn of, of where the use a lame language where the market was. So I'm a, I'm a still image guy, right? But but people want videos. They want to be entertained. They want to watch stuff, right? And they want to watch you draw and they want to watch you paint. They want to see things. So he was doing these quick little videos of him painting and he's quite good. And so his audience went huge. And then then they were buying from him directly. So this guy had really cut out a lot of the middlemen and, and and then he 
he put them up for bid. So they were first. It was nothing over a hundred dollars, you know, painting a day, one hundred dollars for a drawing, and everybody started getting on board with that kind of stuff. And then he started thinking, um, okay, we'll put them up for auction, and they were not going for a hundred bucks all of a sudden. They were going for more, sometimes a lot more. And as he says, he quit his day job, right? And he was also doing more developed and resolved, larger, ambitious paintings as well. So this helped him with his promotion. You know, your dealers, they have a lot of different artists. And so how much time they devote to each artist is commensurate with how much money they're getting back from that artist. So as a young developing artist, if they see promise, then they get ahead. If, they, if they're waiting for you to start getting hot, then they're holding back and they're putting the money elsewhere. And the internet did show options to give give us options you know and um i think people are still figuring out so what i because i was doing so many drawings in the book and in my book there's a chronology so in a way sometimes and sometimes not but in some of the books there's a chronology so you could follow events and you could follow ideas developing in the book but it makes a very expensive object to sell because you have a hundred drawings. And, and so I didn't, I, I have not been monetizing the sketchbooks because where my, when I was in galleries, I had established a price range for me. And all of a sudden you're at, with an audience that doesn't understand that price range. They see you with them here. And then you, it's a big adjustment. So I just spoke to Paul Heaston yesterday and we were talking about this because he also finds the, it, it's funny, the idea of making videos. And what we chanced upon was that what happens is that 99% uh, of his audience is not actually looking at his sketchbooks and all of his art is in his sketchbooks as well. So they're not actually physically looking at the sketchbook. 99.9% .9 in fact of his audience would be his audience looking at the pictures he takes of his sketchbook and then shares on the internet or a video he makes of the sketchbook of maybe the drawing process or a sketchbook flip through. And that video and that picture is the product, not the sketchbook itself. So the idea what's happening now is that a lot of people, it, it, you're not trying to sell the sketchbook. You're trying to make va uh, create value around the photo or the video that you make of the sketchbook, of the drawing, of the of a single page or of many pages. So the product is a digital product, and what people are paying for is not necessarily something they can own, but simply something they can be part of. So the journey of being told this story the journey of finding out how a sketchbook evolves chronologically, the journey of how a graphic novella is made out of observational sketches. And that experience is not a tangible experience. So it's not something they need to necessarily own and frame on their wall, which is one way of looking at how people consume art, the fact that they will own it and they will put it on a wall somewhere. So what is that? What is that? Is it in NFT or NTF? Well, uh, so NF NFTs are uh, are a very specific expression of this non fungible tokens, 
and they are uh, well i'm not even speaking about nfts right now i'm just speaking about how value is created digitally in a like all of us who are urban sketchers and we're looking at the work of other urban sketchers on the facebook page we're also looking not at actual sketchbooks we're looking at pictures of sketchbooks with possibly the background behind it so the thing that we're hitting that like or that heart button on is just the picture not the actual thing and often the classes we take or the classes that artists offer is a video of them speaking to you not them actually speaking to you well yes and and i mean in the gallery environment many things were one of a kind purchased seen as unique uh it was why so many dealers were not interested in selling prints right and now that's a way that some people have monetized they can't sell the sketchbook it would be fortunate but they'll sell facsimiles they'll, they'll publish and and then now for 25 bucks you get a, yeah, a copy like, you can hold. like i sell i sell a lot of prints of my drawings because i have been asked people have asked me if i would sell a sketchbook page or if i would sell the sketchbook and i can quote my price but i've just refused because i'm not i i, I just refuse to sell the actual sketchbook itself but i offer high quality prints of it and a lot of people are quite happy with that but equally what i've been doing over the last year is with this podcast uh with the newsletter that i write every week for over a year now so i've i'm nearing on 80 issues of that 80 weeks of writing every week what i'm creating value around or this is how i pitch it to myself so that i can then pitch it to others is that i'm creating value around this journey that i'm on to teach myself how to draw to teach myself how to observe my world to sort of find home in these parts of the world that are completely new to me so this journey is expressed through words that i type and drawings that i make of the things that i see and this journey and this my expression of it my sharing it is something that has value to people mm. delivered yeah. to them whether as Uh, an image or as an email or as uh, something else which might exist only in the digital medium simply the idea of being able to interact with me and ask me things is again a digital interaction and i'm trying to create value around those aspects of it so now currently for example i have a few dozen people who support this podcast and who who pay me every month or Uh, pay me at uh, random intervals whenever they like a specific episode they buy me what uh, it's pitched as buying me a coffee in exchange for this show that you liked and a number of people do that and this is simply not something that again it's not tangible right like it's just an experience that they're going through that I'm offering them and they feel the gratitude to support it and to enable it to keep happening so this notion of what is value and what creates value is changing really quickly around us in the last 10 15 years it's just exploded this, this the value is created in so many more avenues and so many more expressions and media and it's therefore an interesting time to be an artist because now we get to define a lot of things and those things are not being handed to us or not being defined for us or being restricted for us in any way we get to make those decisions and we get to uh, create all these kinds of products and share them with people and see what value they have in their lives you well know, for certain and the audience the potential audience is is staggering for many people um 
where I see some of the value is that it's in uh, it's in learning, right? So people come to you because they watch your learning process, they watch what you do, and many people might identify with that. You know, so when I would go around the country and I would show people how to sketch, this is what I was doing. I was showing them how I literally drew, how I used products why I would do this, they would ask all the kind of technical questions. And so online, part of it is definitely how you enable others and how you share with others and, and what they can learn from you. Uh, you know, I mean, as a guitar player, as a kid, when I was starting to play the guitar of 17, if you would, couldn't go to clubs. And if your family members didn't play the instrument and your parents didn't want to spend for a teacher, you had to go find some books. There weren't a ton. Uh, you know, it was a, a, a pretty slow, organic way of learning. Well, go online now and you can see people are remarkably capable at a really young age because they have found all of these conduits for learning. And I know that a lot of people follow me for, uh, there's just a number of reasons why they follow me. One is they follow me because they feel that I have experiences and, and that I have capabilities and I have the ability to talk about those that I can actually share and and give them ideas. So I get people come to me and take lessons from me from time to time. So I have been I have a few online uh, students that come and go they come and go. And um I haven't really worked wholeheartedly to do that. I know some of the urban sketchers have really made uh great strides with that they have big audiences they go do festivals and they can go out and teach when you can't online you can teach um you are not as interested in doing online drawing events and I, i've done some you know <laughs> they can be fun they can be interesting but I, I also would draw when i was watching news programs anyways way back so i'm used to used to drawing from magazines papers from tv sets uh, I, I do it all. So this, you know, you can find value in any of that. Um, the, the, the challenges of monetizing, I'm a slow learner. I never do anything quick or get, get things early. I, I'm not one of those people that can be good at something quick. I am a slow, slow study, the tortoise. And, um, so for me, uh, I have to persevere when I'm having fun and when I'm not. So for that, that's one thing. Uh, I have, uh, I mean, I have to have a lot of strategies. <laughs> you know, one is just tenacity. You know, um, partially because what I try to tell people about it: if you want to get good at something and then you, you need to invest time in it but, but it's what's really kind of important as i saw it was that you see yourself you see your something about yourself in the activity so jamila my wife she's a scientist so it was just early on she did things about looking at the world and looking at objects and 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 seeing things that this that just she followed that innate curiosity and innate way of doing things and and i've always drawn i didn't know how you made a living as an artist so i had to go out and find other kinds of jobs i've, I've 
made a li- somewhat of a living, but I mean, how many years did you invest in it? I mean, one of the things that you touch base on is sunk cost fa- fallacy, right? Which is another way of talking about it is throwing good money after bad. <laughs> you know, some people pull out because they don't see returns on it, but it was never about that. It was never, I mean, it became about that to some degree, because if you can make a living off of the things that you do and that you love to do, that they did, what that money does is it affords you time. And then, then you can channel that time into doing the thing it is that you like. And the more time you do it, it, the possibility is the more adept, the better you get. And for me, playing, I played the guitar. It took a long time, I, you know, to get decent. I was never in bands. It was just a lot of learning on my own and playing at night and stuff. I mean, I didn't even take lessons until I had been playing the guitar for, I started at 17. I think I took my first real lessons when I was 47, right? So I had played a long time and it was a slow process of just farting around, which I believe in because you see some people and they go to rock school and they do this and these kids are playing and they, you can just basically see who they play like. But not that you, you can't, not that you can't grow and move beyond all of your heroes. But for me, the struggle informed a lot of how the craft developed, which is part of the thing about the the architect and the gardener that there's some overlay because it's being out in the garden and seeing how things develop. It informs how you would do something the next go around. And, um, but but I was never, I never had the businessman's mindset. I just had the noodler's mindset. I was, I had something by the tail, and I'm just down, pulling out. Say, well, what is there's this? Where's this take me? What have I got here? And I and I loved the process. I mean, I liked holding the paint. I liked ink. I'm all about line and 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 how that describes things, and then. Uh, the interplay between how you see things, how you perceive them, and how you describe them. Um, all of the challenges, I just took to it. I mean, that, I saw myself in that process. That was really good. Now, trying to figure out how to make a living at this craft has been a lifelong thing, too. Um, and and um, I've spent hours and hours and hours days and weeks and months online and i quite frankly don't think that i've the income is caught up with the effort right but but if you look at at the amazon and tesla those guys ran in the red for years with the possibility like a lot of companies of going belly up now how they were able to do that i don't really know I don't know how they did that, but I've operated in the red as a creative many, many years of my life. I just did it. The interesting thing is I had a show for about not quite two years. I was in a really top flight gallery in New York and then we made some sales, you know, and the price structure, I could see the price structure was going to go up or not. And the only way I got in there is because I had spent all of those years, you know, farting around in the studio. You know, like, what are you doing out there? Are you doing anything worthwhile? Where's your business plan? Fuck if I know. This is a craft, you know? 
And this is something that is about a personal journey. And, and this is just who I am. It's just, you know, there was just so much of it that I couldn't pull it apart and separate. And the same way when I go out in society and I draw and integrating myself, the craft further integrates me into the society, right? Like, how do you pull this apart? Um, so I have learned a few things, you know, I've, 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 about supporting myself with this, which is more and more important as you get older, because you cease to be of real value as an employee to a lot of people. My value comes now as an educator. If they don't want to actually own what it is I do, and some people do, my value comes in helping those that are on a similar path and sharing uh, what I did and, and keeping them encouraged and engaged and, and what are the things that keep them engaged? Well, you know, uh, just letting them know that not to be discouraged by things like failure, that failure is the product of trying stuff and, and, and discovery and looking and being unfamiliar and getting familiar with something and acquiring capability. Nobody does anything well from the get go. So um, I guess, I guess what I want to know is um, with, with all these possibilities and then having a good understanding of certain things that you are comfortable with, certain things you're not comfortable with, certain things you're willing to learn, certain other things you, you're not in, say, you don't have the inclination to learn certain tricks because you want to work on certain others. So there's this, I like when, when you were talking about uh, your value as an educator and seeing that value in, in yourself, I was thinking about this other part that I discussed with Kosher also about how we need to think of, and this is how I phrased it, we need to think of the games we want to play and the sort of the fields we want to toil in and what are the rules, what are the criteria, what is success, what is failure and being able to understand that better helps us to operate within it better. And what's becoming true more and more every year is that there is no real singular formula for achieving success if you're an artist. And this is both the good news and the bad news. So it, if you see it as looking for a formula, you see it as bad news that there is no formula for success. But if you're the kind of person who likes to do a certain thing a certain way, this is also good news that there is no formula for success. You can make your own success happen by using the things that you're comfortable doing and then figuring out how that would work for you. So I'm I'm curious to know how you now see the next uh, like the next few years. What are the things you want to do, like with this graphic novella, for example, but even other things, and how you see these this the 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 field that you're operating in with all these new rules coming every few months. How do you see things evolving? What what is it that you want to do? What is it that you are excited to get into? Well, I'm still <clears throat> I'm still working with uh, companies. You know, so I just came back from making videos, and it's a, and I did illustrations uh, last spring. I did a number of them for products that are coming out. And as the pandemic lifts, I'll go back out and do workshops and do trade shows and stuff like that. I don't know how much, but that's part of what I do, which 
I enjoy a good deal. And I think that I've got to, I have to ask myself to be open and spontaneous and to, to see opportunities, right? So the opportunity came to go out and work for the company. But in that, I was talking to lots of young people. So I made myself as absolutely available to them as I could to share with them in a way that I never experienced from visiting artists at the schools I was at. Um, and that increased my social following, whatever. That was one thing. I don't know that I made any money off of them, which wasn't my intention. Um, I need to get back into showing work in a gallery situation. And I've got to figure out how to edit big sections of my lot, lots of the, all of this work I've produced into consumables, right? A book, <laughs> videos, or, uh, a, a, a class, an online class, something like that. So right now, I have to say that I'm still a guy that has a lot of irons in the fire. And it's very hard to keep them hot. You know, several irons hot. And, and you can fritter away a lot of energy thinking, running around, keep trying different irons. Um, um, so, you know, this is where I have to realize what's, I have to figure out what's fruitful and what's enjoyable and what makes sense and what dovetails with what it is I want to do with the artwork itself, which is tell stories about what's going on right now. And, and, um, those, those are all, I'm not real organized. I don't have a real clear whiteboard with the strategies laid on it and the, and the flow charts and all that kind of stuff. Um, I'm still trying to figure out what I'm, what I do well. And in, in this new realm of adjusting to the media and the outlets, uh, and am I going to go back into the old model of having a dealer? Well, that's 50%. You get, you got to give them 50%, right? But I've gone online and tried to figure out things and I'm, I'm on uh, Instagram but unfortunately, because I was getting money, they were on me to create a business account. As soon as I created the business account, they froze my following numbers. For two years, I've been stuck at 12,000. Every day I see new followers. It doesn't reflect it because that business model is not making any money off of me as they see it. And they are not going to open the channels up until I start paying the money. And I am resisting that dramatically. So they've narrowed down. I don't know how that really works. I don't know if they've narrowed down my audience or they just don't let me know what it is. Um, and so I don't want to put all my ducks, all my eggs in that basket. I, I feel, I already feel their whip and their, their reins. I can feel them guiding me a certain way. I do think there's something that the, the media demands from artists, which is, uh, at times it's invigorating, but other times it's just sapping your talent, you know. And um, I was on TikTok briefly and I got off of it. Um, in part because even though I do sketches and I do these real quick things that are taken there, I again, I am, I'm a novelist. I mean, I want to do something which has some, it's brought together in, in which there's 
depth. I want to, I want a creative structure that is about more than one thing. I want, I want something in the observation, which has a broader view. There's more involved. You see stuff, there's greater understanding, there's more reflection and and that's that's what I'm trying to develop and then how to figure out how to make money off of that. And this constantly trying to fit this little nip, 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 do this, do this, do this, do this. Every day I'm sitting there trying to do that, satisfy that need. I'm on several platforms and and I'm trying to satisfy their needs. And 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 it is. There's this image by Jacques Callot, C-A-L-L-O-T, Callot, a French artist called The Temptation of St. Anthony. And it's this amazing print. And St. Anthony is down in the lower right-hand corner in this landscape, this, this dystopian landscape. And there are demons and these crazy winged features swirling all over the place and firing cannons out of which more demons are coming. And this enormous demon flying through the air with demons coming out of every orifice on him. And everything is picking at St. Sebastian and pulling at him in a lot. Well... For years, I avoided that because I was—I had a gallery. I produced work. I gave it to the gallery. Their job was to find the wallets. I had a job, was not connected to what I did. I went, I worked, and I could close the door on it. It didn't follow me home. I got what was very good. No anxiety, no work on projects. Go to work, leave work. That's it. Go home. And now concentrate on making artwork and concentrate on concepts, concentrate on development, concentrate on presentation, drop it off, go back, do the next pieces, get ready for shows. That has changed dramatically for me, dramatically. I have, um, I'm fractured in many ways, which is not always what I would say conducive and to sustained thought and then depth on things as each little thing pulls you away from something else. So when I do illustration work, it's like, what do they want me to do? What is it? You know, there's one expression that some illustrators saw that say, you're just the wrist. <laughs> you know? And, and when I do that kind of stuff, I'm still bringing my creative sense of like, well, how can I make this better? What do I do to sell the product? What do I do to say, how do I, what images will help? And I sweat that shit. The same as if I'm working on my stuff. I sweat it. Um, so I'm afraid for the time being, I am a guy with a, a juggling a lot of, you know, a flower pot, a bowling ball, you know, a fork, all these different objects of different weights. I'm trying to juggle this kind of stuff. Uh, it, 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 it's engaging. Um, and as a guy in, in 67 years old, I saw my father with nothing pulling his attention and how he just kind of became more and more you know, lost. He wanted to do things, right? So I have a lot of challenges in front of me. I don't know um, how well I, I rise up to them. Um, and it, and there were times when I probably drew more because I would just go to the studio and I would work towards resolving that, that piece, which again, there was an idea. I came up with an overall structure. I had certain materials, right? There's your architect at work. In the process of working on it, things would happen I hadn't realized. I had to solve this. I had to do that. I would change things. I would add stuff. There's the gardener. And, and But I was 
still working in a methodical process that there seemed to be step after step after step. And now, I guess one of the creative aspects of my life is how do I make sense of where I'm at with this multi-personality? You know, I'm back, I have become a hydra with a lot of different <laughs> heads all thinking about different things, right? How do I get that, that hydra to do something which resonates with me, creates stuff, makes, feeds himself, lives on it, satisfies things. And, and I honestly would in some time point nine get, like to get back to where sales pay my, pay my mortgage, my, 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 you know, that's what I would like. And that those sales are, are sufficient to keep me focused on the work that leads to those. Uh, so it's, it's challenging. And, um, and in that, in that you sort of see one of the things I've gotten to see by working with corporations and whatnot is I see how they benefit. It was, it's, so, you know, musicians just wanted to get published. They just wanted to get on air and get, you know, their song out there for a long time when they were young. And, but the, AR people and the company, record companies, they were wanting to make money. And they were the ones that made money until the, in the 70s, the musicians started hiring lawyers and accountants and said, what are you doing? You need publishing rights, that kind of stuff. And what I'm doing now, certain things I do, I retain ownership of image, copyright, um, um, but there's other things I don't know how much I've let go of. Like if you, on, on Instagram, Facebook, and some of the other platforms, I ha you have provided them with a crazy amount of imagery. And what's the protection of your, your ideas and your imagery and who's making money off of them? Um, uh, you know, I mean, we've all driven, the creatives have all driven the success of Facebook. At this point, unfortunately, uh, Don's connection faltered again for maybe the fourth time uh, that it happened during uh, this recording, and we were unable to to speak again and to continue continue this conversation. So, uh, unfortunately, the episode ends somewhat abruptly, and I was not able to re-record with him and find suitable dates because of my own travel plans and the busyness of both of our schedules. I hope to do so sometime soon again, and maybe we can have a third conversation. But I I considered if I should share this incomplete session with you guys, it just felt wrong to not do so. And therefore, it is what it is. I'll see you next week with a new episode. I hope I was able to give you some good ideas with this one. And I look forward to hearing from you what you think of it. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>